Last episode, I presented what I think is the best analogy uh, for capturing the relationship between God and creation. And then I explored uh, in sort of a preliminary or in cohate fashion, um, some of the ways in which that analogy might be applied. Now, I feel pretty strongly uh, that the analogy is sound and that it's got the opportunity to bear some real fruit in our lives as thinking Christians. But I wondered how might the analogy and my applications thereof hold up under scrutiny uh, in conversation with somebody who disagrees with me on a on some issues where I applied the analogy in certain ways. And so I'm joined today by uh, my guest Braxton Hunter to do just that uh, on this episode of The Apologetics. This is Chris Date, and welcome to The Apologetics, where every other week I discuss a wide variety of theological issues and show how a properly biblical worldview can help defend the historic Christian faith from its critics. Join me as we think through what we believe and why we believe it, and not something else. Welcome back to this uh, another episode of The Apologetics. I'm Chris Date, and I'm really excited to uh, introduce my guest to you. Um, uh, many of you will already be familiar with him. I'm talking about the guy on my right, according to the screen that you're probably looking at right now, Braxton Hunter. Um, he's my friend, and he's the president of the seminary at which I am on the faculty, the, tr uh, the president of Trinity College of the Bible and Theological Seminary in Evansville, Indiana. He's also the former president of the Conference of Southern Baptist Evangelicals. And as a professor of apologetics, uh, Braxton is very passionate about the defense of the Christian faith in a skeptical world. And because of the um, very uh, great conversations I've had with him, including on this very analogy, uh, I thought it would be worth having him on to discuss it. So uh, Braxton, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me on, Chris. Uh, it's a real honor to be on your show. And even before I had any sort of an internet presence, I was a big follower of your work and uh, listening to your voice. And so I feel a little bit like I'm on here with a celebrity right now. Well, I feel the same way, and uh, but the other way around. And um, honestly, you probably shouldn't have said that you had a, a high opinion of me even before you became internet famous, because it's probably going to call into question your your the quality of your judgment in the eyes of a lot of our viewers. But we'll 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 let that play out as it will. A um, few things before we talk about the topic that I wanted to talk to you about today, um, about you and the work that you do. Um, tell us first about Trinity College of the Bible and Theological Seminary, because um, a, a lot of people are looking for a higher Christian education, but can't afford either in terms of time or in terms of money, a or, you know, an ordinary brick and mortar or even online institution that, um, th that you would find in many places. And so why might some of our viewers who are looking for a higher education want to consider uh, Trinity College of the Bible and Theological Seminary? Well, Trinity started in 1969 with two primary goals, and that was one, to allow um, for ministers who could not leave their ministry field to go attend a brick-and-mortar school, to uh, do it through distance education from where they are, uh, wherever they were around the world, and of course at that time it had to do with mailing them cassette tapes and things like that so that they could listen to their lectures and do their work. And it, we wanted to—we, I wasn't around at the time—but we wanted to produce uh, quality theological education at an affordable price where people could uh, have access to that right where they were, wherever in the world they were. And we still live by those guiding principles to this day. It is a theologically conservative um, 
non-denominational school, as you know, you'll have professors like you, who um, you're a Calvinist and, uh, condi- and you affirm conditional immortality. On the other hand, we have Leighton Flowers. And so uh, we really do want to be non-denominational, but uh, conservative, theologically speaking, um, and orthodox in that way. And so um, so that that's what we, what we do. And the reason someone might want to come to us is Perhaps you're in that spot. You're a ministry professional, and you'd like to go further. Maybe you already have the degrees that you want, but you'd like to continue studying. Perhaps you're a layperson, and you have no desire to ever be in some form of professional ministry. Um, You just want to go deeper in your walk. Well, Trinity does that at a cost that I think is um, incredibly uh, acceptable uh, when you look at other schools that have the caliber of faculty that we do. And so that that's really what we offer, and, and we think our students uh, and our graduates have great opportunities when they get finished. Um, we we have relationships with at least one, we have a relationship with at least one other school and good relationships with other schools, um, but we have a formal relationship with Calvary University, and so our students can be confident that if they want to go on to uh, get a PhD from a different school or work on work somewhere else, they can do that. And we've had students who have become become uh, faculty at other regionally accredited schools and um, and presidents of those schools. And um, so we, we just see what we do as fitting a niche. And today, I'm proud to say we have students in 120 plus countries, and we are one of the only schools that has a presence in uh, certain Muslim countries um, where uh, this sort of ministry is and, and uh, academic program is um, experiences some degree of persecution. Mm. Yeah, that's incredible. And, and I hope that uh, people that might be interested will will check out the Trinity website at trinitysem.edu, where SEM is short for seminary. But our, our viewers who are familiar with you are likely, to, likely might be the wrong word, but are probably um, more familiar with you, not because of your work as the president of Trinity, but because you're the host of a very popular YouTube channel, popular in Christian terms, uh, popular YouTube channel called Trinity Radio. So tell us about what you do on Trinity Radio and um, uh, why viewers might find your show uh, interesting as well. Yeah, it's a bit of a headache that some kid can start a channel devoted to Minecraft and have 20,000 subscribers tomorrow. And we've been at this for a few years and have 10,000 subscribers now. But um, but that's that's the niche we're in. Right. Uh, but our our channel is a theology and apologetics channel, which is appropriate for this show. And uh, uh, primarily, though, it's apologetics, and specifically apologetics toward atheists. And what that typically looks like now, uh, though it's not true of our back catalog of episodes, is that it's response videos to certain um, YouTube atheists and academic atheists, and we just break down what they're saying and try to explain. We see that um, there, the, YouTube and the internet generally, but YouTube for sure is dominated by atheist voices in the worldview discussion arena. And so um, my thought was, why not provide response videos for every major YouTuber and their most popular videos? And so that when people are searching, um, they, they come across not just what the atheist is saying, but they also can hear from a Christian perspective. And so one of the things that I've tried to do on our show is Um, to try and be as charitable to atheists as I can, because I realize that a lot of the people that are listening are atheists themselves. And so I want them to feel like I hear them. I'm not trying to straw man them. That doesn't mean occasionally that you don't, um, you don't say things boldly and straightforwardly. Um, I have a co-host that only does that. And so, (laughs) (laughs) but, but that's kind of what our channel is all about. 
Awesome. Uh, and, and I'll encourage viewers to check out youtube.com slash Braxton Hunter uh, for your channel, Trinity Radio. You mentioned your co-host, and although he's not here to defend himself, we'll talk about him for a minute anyway, um, he's not just your, your sometimes co-host on Trinity Radio, but if I'm not mistaken, he's also uh, the primary person behind Trinity Radio Extra. Is that right? And if so, can you tell us what Trinity Radio Extra is? Yeah, Trinity Radio Extra, you can think of it this way. Trinity Radio, our main channel, is mostly me, and it has Jonathan at least one episode a week. Trinity Radio Extra is mostly Jonathan, and it occasionally has me. And Trinity Radio Extra is going to focus more on theology issues um, mm -hmm. than apologetics, although there's going to be a little bit of both on both channels. Um, the Trinity Radio main channel is going to be primarily apologetics. The uh, Trinity Radio Extra is going to be primarily theology, and we like that. We think that, that uh, I'd like to add other channels at some point that hit different areas of discipline within the church but um but yeah that's that's what he does and jonathan pritchett is not only my best friend but i can honestly say of male um peers that i know he has proven himself time and time again to probably be the most loyal peer uh that that i'm aware of um and so i i love him with all my heart and i get bothered when if anybody ever you know, I get kind of a mama bear attitude when people attack <laughs> him. So, <laughs> yeah. Well, I love Jonathan as well. Um, the only thing I would criticize him for is for not getting an actual name for that channel yet on YouTube. You still have to go search YouTube for Trinity Radio Extra, but you've got over uh, 800 subscribers. So you can already request an actual URL. You know, so you, I would I would encourage yeah. you to tell. Jonathan Nash. I'm probably the one that would do that, so thank you for reminding me. Oh, so it's your fault. Good to know, good to know. One last resource with the word Trinity in it that I wanted to discuss was the Trinity Commission, um, which is a network of shows that this show is a part of, as is Trinity Radio. Can you tell listeners a little bit about the Trinity Commission and how they might, what they might be able to find in the other voices that are a part of that commission? Yeah, so a few years ago, uh, we realized that we had people that we were friendly with who were also in some way or other connected to our school, Trinity College of the Bible and Theological Seminary that we've been talking about. And um, at the time, that was Leighton Flowers and the guys at the Bible Bro Down. And so what we thought was, hey, other groups, uh, certain Reformed groups that are into Reformed theology, uh, create you know, podcast consortiums and, and we'll pull together and promote each other and, you know, represent kind of a unified front out there. And so we thought that's a good idea and we're friends and we ha we're on each other's shows all the time. So why not do that? And so the only requirement we really had was that in some way you either are or have been involved at Trinity Seminary. And so, uh, uh, Leighton teaches there. The Bible Breakdown guys were going to school here for a while. And so we developed the Trinity Commission, and um, we are excited here lately to be able to add you to that uh, platform, Chris. You have a relationship with Trinity now, and um, I'm also excited about that because now our podcast consortium more represents uh, the heart of our school, which is um, solidarity on the fundamentals that we, that if you're in any sense a Christian, you can't really equivocate on. And, uh, but, but we allow brevity, uh, brevity. Yeah. Hopefully brevity. <laughs> we, we allow for a variety of views. on. It won't be brevity with me on there. That's for sure. Yeah, none of our shows accomplish that very well. <laughs> No, that's, that's good. And so the other shows on the Trinity Commission, um, correct me if I'm wrong or if I miss any, but we're talking Steve Gregg's The Narrow Path. Oh, yes. um, you've already mentioned the Bible Bro Down, Soteriology 101. What about Tim Stratton's show? Because he's got a show as well, doesn't he? Is, is he? And I, he's now on the faculty. I don't know that I've actually asked Tim if he wants to be considered a part of the Trinity Commission, but he definitely should be. 
Um, I agree. That, you know, that's one of the great things about our school. I mean, listen, Pritchett says this all the time. You can go to a lot of schools where you, you have a highly credentialed professor, but hopefully what Trinity is going to offer is a place, and this is true of our podcast group too and our YouTube channels, is that you're going to get people that you've actually heard of, uh, mm. hopefully. Uh, like we said before, you know, minor internet celebrities, right? <laughs> but <laughs> yeah. but you know, we don't even like the word celebrity. The, our most important credential is that we're followers of Jesus. But, um, but yeah, people that you actually know and interact with online, that theology geeks and ministry people are going to be aware of these names, and that's what we want. Yeah, very cool. Well, if people want to find the Trinity Commission, um, they can just do a search on Facebook for the Trinity Commission and find it there. Let's go ahead and start to transition into the topic that I invited you on the show today to talk about. Um, oh, yeah. And, and I'll, I'll, I'll preface this transition by saying one of the reasons, among several, why I thought it would be great to have you on the show, and I, I, full disclosure, it was actually uh, it, at least a nugget of the idea was, was yours to begin with, because you and I had talked on the phone for a while about this, and you were like, hey, I bet a lot of people would like this conversation. Um, but one of the reasons why I thought it'd be great to have you on is because you and I have started to explore uh, something of an apologetic that um, that is appealing to us and that we're thinking there might be something there to work out um and and that has to do with um the the uh, the value the inherent value of inquiry and discovery because um i was thinking one day that the, one of the reasons why i think a lot of atheists and even some christians fear the concept of eternal life is because they have a um they don't have a very robust view of eternal life and they think it's just sort of sitting around and playing harps and worshiping God all the time. And, and if that's what God had in mind, so be it. I'm sure it would be fantastic. But I proposed in my recent presentation at the uh, Rethinking Hell conference that perhaps one of the things that is likely to keep eternal life interesting and enjoyable and blissful is that throughout all eternity, there will be, um, there will be the ability for human beings to explore and inquire and discover and do so together in community. And I even applied that to the uh, topic of um, doing theology, even in the here and now. I proposed that perhaps this might be an apologetic to help um, uh, answer the objection that many atheists have, which is why do Christians disagree on so many things? If the scripture was so clear, wouldn't we all just agree? And I'm proposing that, hey, perhaps God appreciates um, the, the, the process of his, of his people working together and disagreeing with each other at times in, in the process of trying to understand his word. Um, so I thought that would be, um, I think that there's, there's a lot of value there and, and it serves as a nice um, platform to transition into the topic we're going to be discussing today. But before I do that, do you want to share any further thoughts on that you've been having lately as we've been exploring these, you know, this, this apologetic together? Yeah, because basically what we're saying here is that we feel like that, as you said, there is something good about the, about the search for truth, the investigation, mm. the, the, and, uh, you know, it brings to my mind things like, um, uh, the, the book, the privileged planet that talks about how not only are we in a place that's suitable for life, but, and that's always what gets all the attention, but our planet, I mean, but also we're in a position that's appropriate to investigate the universe around us. And it would have been very easily for that easy for that not to have been the case. Right. Um, we hear atheists often challenge us with, well, if there was a God who really wanted to make everything clear to us, why is it? that there are so many different denominations and people disagree about so many things. And so what was cool was people that are longtime listeners of our show, and there are two or three of them in the chat right now uh, that, are, that, that listen to your show and mine, they could probably see this emerging if they go back now and think about it. I've said for over a year that I thought 
that there's something good about the search and um, and perhaps God is pleased with that. And you mm -hmm. don't, you know, the, the, the quest for knowledge doesn't end in discovery when you become a Christian, nor does it need to end in the hereafter either. And so when you mentioned it to me, which we first talked about this, I'd say a month ago, something mm -hmm. like that, and we, we started putting our heads together, you didn't get that from me, I didn't get that from you. And whenever I see something like that beginning to happen, it always makes my ears perk up and think, is God doing something here when two brothers come to a similar uh, thought? Not that it's a new thought necessarily, you know, uh, but, but to us it's new. And so I think um, a similar thing happened with me and Tim Stratton on, on free will arguments, though I don't think you'd have much sympathy for that. <laughs> but, uh, but, but whenever that happens, it just makes me think, huh, maybe, there, maybe I should pay more attention to this. Hmm. And, and you're right. It's not just us. It, it didn't originate with us. I think you mentioned that just recently you were watching a debate or a conversation between Randall Rouser and um, is it Randall Rouser uh, and, and, and an atheist or something? What am I remembering? Dan Barker. Dan Barker. Randall Rouser and Dan Barker were talking and Randall Rouser basically made a very similar point, if not this very point. Yeah, very cool. Well, I'm looking forward to exploring that further with you and seeing if anything comes of it other than our own personal edification and, you know, whatever edification we can affect upon others. Um, but that is nicely going to lead us, I think, into the topic that we're going to be discussing now, because um, as you know, you've, you've watched uh, or at the very least listened to the last episode of the show where I presented this analogy that I think is appropriate for uh, capturing the relationship between God and creation. And I suspect that in um, many ways, you and I will be on the same page about that analogy and about some of its possible applications that I discussed in that episode. But I think that there are some aspects where we're going to disagree to one degree or another. Um, and the great thing about you and I doing this, I think, is that we are so able to have just a friendly and loving conversation as brothers, even though we disagree on some of these things. And so I think it's going to be worthwhile. Um, now, just to get the ball rolling, what I identified as the aspects of the God-creation relation in that episode of The Apologetics two weeks ago, uh, and that any analogy must capture are at least the following. Um, God doesn't just create, he, but also creation experiences and acts. God upholds and transcends creation, and he is omnipresent and omnitemporal. That is, he's at all places and at all times in creation. Now, before we get into any of the analogies, I looked at, um, would you agree with this sort of list of aspects in that relationship that probably need to be captured by whatever analogy we come up with? Yeah, I think so. And I should say I was looking for a place to fit this in, but I'm, I'm really excited about this. But this should lower everyone's expectations a little bit. I've thought about this off and on in my head uh, since we talked about it at first a couple of weeks ago, and I focused for two hours on it this afternoon. And so uh, I'm sure you have much well, much more well-orbed thoughts about this than I do. And I would actually be happy to find out that um, if you're right and I'm wrong, and that is a, and what you're going to present is a better analogy for the relationship between God and his creation, I would actually be happy to find that out. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't have a lot of stock in what I'm defending here, except that I just think it's a better analogy and we'll get to what that is. Ooh. But if I find out that you're, what you're presenting is, is, is more appropriate, I'd be happy to learn that because I like it when you and I are on the same side of things, um, as long as it's not artificial. If it's genuinely that we're on the same side of things because, um, well, we can, we, can, uh, we can team up on issues and, and, and create resources, and so I love that. So I'm, I'm really open on this. I'm just going to be like um, one of the new atheists here and say, 
I'm just not convinced. You've just got to convince me. <laughs> well, we'll see if I manage that. Um, and I'm glad you said that uh, listeners' expectations should be a little bit lowered. I, I think that's the case uh, as far as my contributions as well, because I, although I have given this some thought over the months mm. and, and a few years, nothing, I don't think I've even devoted two hours to the topic since that stream uh, two weeks ago. So uh, be warned, listeners, this is going to be underdeveloped and, and a little bit um, uh, casual, and, and we don't really know what directions it'll go. But you've got me really intrigued. I had no idea that you've got it, what you think is going to possibly be a better analogy. I can't wait to hear it. Um well, so let's turn from those aspects of the relationship to the analogies that I first explored but determined uh, or concluded, I should say, don't successfully capture all of those aspects. So, for example, um, I discussed sculptors and painters whose creations are static. They don't experience or act. And then I discussed engineers who produce robots and self-driving cars. They, in a sense, experience and act, um, but they're not in any way dependent upon on their creators for their continued existence. I discussed puppeteers and pregnant mothers whose creations are ongoingly dependent upon them um, for their continued experience and, and actions. But those, the pu puppeteers and pregnant mothers don't transcend uh, their creations, as it were. They're on the exact same plane as them. And then the last uh, pair of analogies that I considered before getting to the one we'll be discussing primarily was the analogy of video game designers. I, I presented a MMORPG example. I think it was a screenshot from World of Warcraft. And then I also present, uh, showed a screenshot of some, if not one of the Sims games. It was nevertheless a game like the Sims. Uh, but in either of those cases, even though there's a sense in which the creator, and for that matter, some players, but that's neither here nor there, transcend the worlds within those games, nevertheless, the designer of the game um, is not in any way, shape, or form omnipresent uh, throughout the game. I mean, the, the, at most, they're going to be able to see the whole, it, theoretically, the whole world all at once, uh, but they're not able to be at all times at once in the way that I think we would agree God is in creation. So the, before we get to what I suggested as the better analogy to all of these, would you do you agree with my assessments of the ones that we've gone through so far? Yeah, I think so. Now, now since we're just doing this casually, I will say, um, I, I think that you're right um, when you say that it needs to transcend. So, for example, uh, with the robot, let's just stick with the robot, forget the marionettes for a second. With the robot, I think, I think that's right, that, um, that you don't have a transcendent creator there. He exists in the same plane, the same reality as the robot does. But the robot, you said, is able to, on some level, have experiences and that sort of thing. Now, I, I, yeah, there's a part of me that wants to quibble about, and I think you would too, about yes. experience, a, a robot experiencing something. But since we recognize, and this is probably important to point out here, that when we're analogizing God and his creation, it's just a fact that uh, we always say, everybody always says analogies break down if they're pressed too far. That happens pretty easily when we're talking about God. And so because of that, um, I realize, that, but let's just go with it for a minute and say that the robot experiences it on some level. Um, the, I actually think that while you're right that your book analogy works better 
um, or not book, but story analogy works. Did you explain that yet, or am I jumping? No, you're you? you're you're letting the cat out of the bag a little early. I'm sorry. Presumably, most okay. of the viewers have already seen that episode. That's okay. Okay. Well, okay. Well, let me save that then. Yes, okay. I agree with you so far. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And and you're absolutely right. I would quibble on the word experience. In fact, I, I probably should have put experience in scare quotes. All I meant to say in the case of a robot or uh, or or a self-driving car is that they are um, they are receiving stimulus. You know, stimulus and then taking action based on the stimuli whether or not they are they have any sort of sentience is not anything that i meant to communicate with that you know so yeah you i think you and i are largely on the same page there um and and i would add not only is it very easy for analogies to fall uh short with god i would say it's virtually necessary that any analogy that we try to come up with that that is in some way analogous to God is going to fall short just by virtue of the fact that he is transcendent and infinite in, in, in these ways. Um, nothing's going to accurately capture that. Um, but nevertheless, uh, the analogy I offered, and now I'll let the cat out of the bag a little bit for viewers who haven't checked out that last episode of The Apologetics. The analogy that I suggested is better than all those other ones Um because it captures all of those aspects that I listed off a moment ago was the analogy of a um, the author of a story and the story the author conceives of. And before I ask you about the analogy and then after that ask you about applications, which is where I think the bulk of our conversation will will take place, I want to I, I want to stress that when I'm talking when I'm offering this analogy, I'm not talking about um, a story as it might exist in the minds of readers and hearers of the story because in the analogy or the, the reality behind the analogy is one in which God is the only transcendent uh, being, right? So, so I, there is no people, there are no people in the analogy to hear the story or read the story and, and have that world in their minds. And I'm also not talking about the process of writing the story or even the process of sort of imagining it play out in one's mind. Um, because God wouldn't be at all times and all places in that world, in that analogy. He would only be at the time and place that he's currently imagining or currently writing or whatever. So what, actually, so what I was talking about in the analogy was how the entirety of a story, at least everything that the, that the author of the story has conceived of thus far, the entirety of a story exists all at once at any given moment within the author's mind. Um, and so before we talk about the ways we might apply the analogy, um, what do you think of the analogy? I, I think where you might have been going, and so maybe I'll try to anticipate this a little bit and preempt it, is that the one, one way in which the robot analogy might be superior to the story analogy is that characters in a story aren't real, whereas a robot is at least real. Um, I might push back on that, but that might be the direction you were going. I'll be interested to hear that. But but. Whether that's a part of it or not, um, before we get into application, what do you make of this analogy, and and do you want to push back or ask questions or anything like that? I think um, the robot analogy fails, and I have issues with um, obviously, or this wouldn't be a very interesting show. I have some issues with um, the author story analogy. Um, I, I think there's a better analogy than both of those, but. Um, what I was going to get at is while I do think that there are virtues to the author story analogy that the robot doesn't live up to, I think that one of the virtues of the robot type analogy is what you just outlined, which shows why you're such a good debater is you can foresee things <laughs> like this, um, is, is that, uh, yeah, the, the robot is at least, uh, 
some sort of agent in time and space in real life uh, like like we are like mm-hmm. like the creation that God created is and um, and and is actually quote unquote experiencing something right right yeah so so that that's a good point um, and you know I, I won't push this too far but I'll just say that um, I'm talking about not just the story but like imagine have you seen the never ending story the movie that I talked a little bit about in that episode so in in a movie like that and there are others similar to it where you've got us uh people on the outside of the story and then you're watching the characters play out the story in the movie as well um that's that's more of the kind of world I'm talking about, um, the, the kind of story analogy I'm talking about, where it's not merely uh, a, a, an abstract concept in the author's mind, um, but it's the next level beyond that, where you, you can you can see the characters playing, you know, playing out the story, um, even if I don't know, I'm not even making sense at this point. But no, yeah, I, but yeah. I think I understand what you're saying. Tell me if this is correct. You're, you're kind of saying, I'm not talking about a situation where someone is imagining something, a story in their minds, um, and, there, and there's no content, you know, no real world content to that. We're more thinking about a situation where someone is thinking out of their brain something that has more substance to it, because that's more analogous to the relationship with God and creation. Is that... Correct. Well, except that um, I'm not talking about the author actively thinking about anything, because as soon as the author is thinking about the story, they've lost the omnipresence and the omnitemporality. That they're, they're, I want to come back to. Yeah. So I'm actually more talking about here. Here's a here's a imperfect as all analogies are analogy. Um, I was recently watching a, um, uh, a documentary called The Movies That Made Us. And I think it was part of a series called The Holiday Movies That Made Us. And the movie in particular that they were um, doing a documentary on was Nightmare Before Christmas. Uh, and if you know anything about Nightmare Before Christmas, you'll know that it's a it, it's a Tim Burton movie. Um, but if you know a little bit more about Nightmare Before Christmas, you'll know that he wasn't as um, closely involved as he was with many of his other movies like Beetlejuice and things like that. Um, by the way, my wife is going to kill me if I get anything about Tim Burton and Nightmare Before Christmas wrong. But... Um, but he was involved enough in it in this in that the world that was eventually captured by the claymation artists was the world in Tim Burton's own mind. And there was a point in the documentary where the um, where one of the makers of the movie said that they presented some initial um, mock-ups or something to Tim Burton. And Tim Burton was like, no, 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 the, the colors in, in the world are this and that, not this and that. Now, he wasn't at that moment picturing the world in his mind he just knows he just knew that the world uh in which nightmare before christmas is set is such and such rather than what was presented to him by the artists and that's i guess what i'm trying to get at is with this idea of omniscience and omnipresence and stuff is that um i'm not i'm not talking about god the 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 author actively thinking the the story out I'm talking about the knowledge the author has at any instant of the entire world that he has conceived of in his mind at any points leading up to that moment. Does that make any sense? I, I think so. Yeah, I think I think so. Um, 
just go ahead and move forward and, and okay. I think we're going to get to, I'm seeing little things here that I'm, that I wrote down that I want to get into, but I, I want to make sure you get the whole thing out on the table before we pick at those. Well, that is the whole thing, uh, before we actually turn to applications, but here's the thing. Now that I know that you have what you think might be an alternative analogy, um, I'd rather at least I mean, if all we end up doing is talking about your analogy and how it compares to mine and, and exploring that, that'd be fine with me. Well, we I actually do think I do think if we talk about the analogy that I think works, um, I think that that will ram up against yours and reveal weaknesses in both and strengths in both. Awesome. Um, so, uh, so, all right. So well, it's not, I, I'm surprised to hear you say that you, um, don't recall my analogy because when we were on the phone the other day, one of the things that I mentioned was that I watched my daughter play the Sims quite a bit. And you did mention, uh, virtual, oh. virtually created worlds, okay. um, as one of the possibilities. I thought you meant and, an analogy other than one of the ones that I presented, but that was one of the analogies I presented. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. Okay, I'm sorry. Good. Yeah. That's I right. actually think that I can, um, do some work on, um, the area on omnipotence or on, I'm sorry, omnipresence and on, uh, what is it? Omnipresence and, uh, omnitemporal, uh, issues. I think we can fix that. Um, and, and one of the values I think, so let me just go ahead and state it and then I'll tell you what I think the value sure. of it is. So one of the reasons that we come to this need for, or possibility of another, um, model besides the author model, I'll just call it is, or the story model, let's say that, is that um, obviously one of the things that probably is most interesting to people when you and I discuss, or you and Leighton Flowers discuss, is the issue of free will versus determinism. And so you think that the Bible presents a picture that is, um, that, that is like compatibilism, at least with certain things, I think. And I think that the Bible presents a picture that is mostly libertarian free will, although not exclusively libertarian free will. And so uh, because of that, um, the story model really does work well on a compatibilist framework, I think. Hmm. Uh, we talked a little bit about maybe it doesn't have to be compatibilism. Maybe there's room for libertarian freedom, um, but we'll get into that if you want to later. For now, <laughs> I'd like to say, let's say that that's right. Let's just say that um, the, the story model is really at home with um, some form of determinism, compatibilism, something like that. Because, um, it, just to spell it out for people, is you know if, if an author is writing a story, one of the things that you presented in your previous video um, is that it's not that when um, Legolas, for example, in Tolkien's universe, when he fires an arrow at an orc, it's not as though Tolkien mechanically made him do that mm -hmm. uh, or even created a causal chain that led to him doing that. It's, but, he, but he does stand behind it in predetermining it because he wrote the story and this, that happens in the story, right? Right. Um, well, that that does sit well with compatibilism, and I think in some ways may serve as a great way to capture what you think are good defenses of a compatibilist understanding of theology. Um, but of course, what if someone doesn't hold to that? What if someone like me is a libertarian and wishes to have a model of their own that that captures this? And I think that though it's less elegant, and I don't mean that in the philosophical sense, I mean that in the in the aesthetic sense, hmm. it's not as classy. It doesn't appeal to bookworms as much, but I do think as I watch it does it does appeal daughter, to us gamers though. Yeah, maybe play, it appeals <laughs> to the gamers. But as I watch my daughter play The Sims, and as I play have played The Sims, I can't help but notice 
the godlike nature, though that I don't mean that in any blasphemous or sacrilegious sense, that the uh, player of the game, or for our analogy here, let's just say the creator of the game, the creator of The Sims, and then their function with their uh, Sims community, is very much like, has, has at least on the face of it, seems to have some connections, right? Mm. You've got a person who stands wholly outside of and transcends it, at least in some sense, doesn't exist in the same plane as the digital creations. Um, and, 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 and those digital creations have their own freedom. Now, if, if you and I are able to take a little bit of license here and say that the robots are experiencing something, you can give me a little bit of license here to say that the, that the, um, uh, that the individual uh, beings in the Sims, even though we know their code and there is something deterministic going on there, we can imagine them having some form of free will because they're moving around doing whatever they want to do, usually messing everything up. Um, and then the person who is the creator comes in and does as he pleases and does as he wills to function within that universe while standing outside of it to manipulate what's going on in these people's lives through secondary causes um, to, and, and, and there's a, there's a great, there, I think that's rich for analogy to these sorts of things. Now, before I finish, let me just say, because you, I, I guess you did ask me if I agreed with you on all those other analogies, and this was one of them. Um, I call them virtual world creations. The Sims would be a virtual world creation or VWCs or for short VWCs. <laughs> um, that, I, you, you did poke a hole in it. And the hole that you poked in it was that they are not on um, that the creator in a setup like that would not be omnipresent and would not be um, omnitemporal. Now, in one sense, when we talk about omnipresence, you said, and I don't know if you said it casually or if you meant it technically, but you said something like uh, Tolkien, Tolkien talking about the Lord of the Rings is um, um, uh, omnipresent in that he's aware of what's going on at every moment in the story or something. That's right. So now many people have conceptualized omnipresence in reality as not being like God's diffused throughout the universe, like a gas, but rather he can't be because he's not, he doesn't take up three dimensions, right? Right. Yeah. But, but he's aware and active everywhere. Right. right? Is that, is that fine with you? Okay. Mm -hmm. So, um, so you would say, and you even, you, you guys who watch this channel, should just love Chris. This should impress you about Chris. I'm looking at it on my screen where I wrote it down in a Word document two hours ago that um, one sense in which a person who's the virtual world creator or the creator of the VWCs <laughs> um, is, uh, is omnipresent in that sense that he's aware of what's going on everywhere at once in his creation is that you could theoretically zoom out and see the entirety of right. your creation on one screen at one time. And you said that just a minute ago. <laughs> that, that's, that blows my mind. Um, and that's very kind. I appreciate it. And doesn't give me much hope that I'll do well going forward. But, um, but, but okay, so now, so now here, let's, let's compare that to your analogy so that we bring the attention back to your analogy okay. and see which one of these fares better. Because I think my analogy does. Even though okay. I, love the, I love the story analogy, don't get me wrong. Um, so it's not meant as a criticism of that sort. But... Sure. Um, so you're right that Tolkien and you said in your previous video, don't you, like you said tonight, don't think about the story as it exists in, uh, someone reading it out of a book or watching a movie or whatever, but rather from the mind of the author and not even when he's writing the book 
for this analogy, we're imagining the book already written after he's already done writing it, and now we're assessing what the relationship to the story is like. Or mm -hmm. maybe not book, but story, right? Right. Mm -hmm. Okay, so in, in, so in such a situation, uh, Tolkien is, is aware. He, ha he is aware of the whole story. But you said tonight and previously, he instantaneously has the story in his mind. Or, mm -hmm. or is instantaneously capturing the story. And that's where I think that the analogy is no better than my analogy, and in fact might be a little bit worse. Okay. So, so, so here's how that works. Tolkien, or any story creator, does not have what I'm going to call um, cognitive simplicity. So, in other words, um, God, we imagine, uh, especially if he existed spacelessly and timelessly sans the physical universe, I have to use present tense as you, you know, you can't, it's hard to do this with, with timeless state, right. but he knows everything instantaneously and he doesn't have to think through thoughts to arrive at new thoughts. And that would open the door to some form of open theism, because when we think through things to arrive at new conclusions, we are in some sense learning from our own thoughts that way. Hmm. And, and, um, and this issues like this, I would imagine, are why you want to start after the book is already done and give the analogy there, which I think is fair and right. But when Tolkien, Tolkien doesn't really hold the whole story in his mind. I have three novels that I don't know, five people have read. Um, and I can't think of the whole story in any, in any one of those novels hmm. um, it, all at once. But if you ask me, well, yeah, but what happens when Jack does X, Y, and Z? Oh, I can focus my attention over there and when I focus on that, now I, I can tell you all about it. But I have to focus. An author has to focus about at different points in his story. Now, in the well, same on, let way... Me, let me interrupt for ahead. a second, because that's exactly what I think that I was trying to deny is what I'm trying to capture with this analogy in the first place. Um, you know, so... so let me let me play act this a little bit um, okay. using the process you just described. You might say, you know, what does the room at this particular point in time uh, in the story and place look like? And you might see me sort of look up in the sky and be like, well, you see, there's this there's this there's this wall and there's this window or whatever. And, and that's where I'm doing the imagining that I was saying I'm not talking about. Rather, I'm talking about something like what is the name of the protagonist in your story? You just know it. You don't have to zoom your, your cognitive thoughts into any particular time and place within the story to answer that. You just know it. And it's, it's really that knowledge that I'm talking about, not the, con, not the conceptualization process, but rather the knowledge of that world that I'm really trying to zero in on this analogy. Um, but anyway, go ahead and continue it or, or, or... Yeah, so, so what, what you're saying is something like, um, so God's knowledge, for instance, I would say is cognitively simple, such that... If, if I like, let's just think of the numbers between one and 100. And I ask you what number comes after 43, 41. you don't have to count through to <laughs> yeah. find out, right? You instantaneously right. know. And God's knowledge is like that in, in some sense, imperfectly, but something like that. Um, and you're saying that about the story. If you ask any particular question, boom, I know it. Um, and, and even though I do have to focus my thoughts there, you're saying that's not the point you want to make. No, I'm However, saying you don't need to focus your thoughts there for the kind of knowledge that we are now talking about. Okay, so when I look, when I take what you're saying here, and I take it to the virtual worlds of The Sims or whatever else, stick with The Sims. Sure. Um, what's happening there is, yeah, okay, if we're talking about omnipresence, meaning aware 
of what's going on, and perhaps we would say we're inactive, at any point in the creation, at any place in the that's a separate point, any point in time, but at any place in the creation, I think that uh, the, the virtual worlds have that in the same way that the author has that. Um, and now you, you're rejecting this, and so this, this could be a point where you, you maybe have already made your point, and perhaps it presents a real challenge, but I'm not convinced. Sure. So, so I'm so the author, so the person in The Sims, the creator of The Sims, does look down at his world and, and he knows, all right? Obviously, we don't want to say God learns that way, but these analogies are not perfect. We go to the story uh, creator, and the story creator there, um, I still maintain, has to, has to focus to some degree on a particular item, just like someone would focus on a particular frame in the, in the uh, virtual world. But, but so where I'm confused, I, I may be missing a, a link in the chain somewhere because I thought we, just a few minutes ago, talked about what's saying, what's the number that comes after 43? Neither mm -hmm. of us are in any sense zooming in even instantaneously on that point in the numerical series in order to say, oh, the number that comes after 43 is 44. No, it's it's instantaneously not known. And I'm just proposed, and the same is true of the name of the protagonist in your story, or, you know, what happens in chapter four of your story? Oh, but the, the protagonist dies by a brutal death or whatever. You know, it's, it's not something that the author has to consciously and cognitively think about. Um, it's something that is immediately uh, known uh, and at all times known by the author, okay. even if he's not consciously thinking about it. Well, that seems right, except what you're picking out are some of the most obvious features of a story, like a like the main character's name. Hmm. But if I asked you a more detailed question about the story, you would have to, you, as you said a moment ago, you, you would have to think it through. And it breaks, I think, that cognitive simplicity, as I've called it. Well, let me ask you this. Is it possible... Uh, and I'm not saying, you know, that if the answer is yes, it's possible, that means there's no other problems in my analogy or anything. But is it possible that the reason for the phenomenon that you just uh, zoomed in on, this, this fact that we as authors need to consciously zoom in on that particular time and place in the story in order to give you details, is it possible that that's simply a symptom of our finite minds and our limited minds? If you've got, um, and the same, by the way, could be true of the process of conceiving of the story. You know, Tolkien probably was developing the story of Middle Earth up until the moment he breathed his last, right? Because the Silmarillion has a whole lot of details, that, and it was published, if I'm not mistaken, after The Hobbit, at least, if not also The Lord of the Rings, but it's talking about stuff that's in the distant mm -hmm. past relative to those things. So clearly the whole world, both future and past, of Middle-earth was being developed over time up until, probably until the time that he died. But what if, so what I'm saying though is what if all of these things, that the time that it takes to conceive of a world, and the, time, and, and, and the fact that an author has to zoom in to go into details of a particular time and place, is it possible that that's just because of our fi our finitude, but God could instant in the one instant in which He exists, uh, if 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 He's timeless, or at the very least an instant in the time that He's a part of, or whatever, however you want to conceive of that, He being infinite and and limitless could instantaneously develop the entirety of the timeline of the created order, from start to eternity future, 
Um, and he would have exhaustive knowledge of that entire thing in, all at once without having to go consciously into yeah. to zoom in in the time and place. Yeah, I think you're right. So what we're talking about is a perfect author, right? Someone yes. who could yeah. do that. All right. A perfect so now, and limitless, take, you know. Yeah, so let's yeah. take that over to my analogy and give you a perfect virtual world creator. Mm -hmm. And I think such a person wouldn't necessarily need to zoom around the world to see what's happening. He could just look down on the whole picture and and see it and, and know it. Okay. Well, so I hear that. Um, so you could imagine, for example, um, a really grotesque mutant type of person and i'm not using that because of the negative terms but rather because of the um the unhuman terms i'm about to use but like let's say that instead of binocular vision he's got eyes all around his head and he's got enough monitors in the form of a dome around his head to be able to see the entire the entire world of the sims the entire vwc all at once um I, yeah you're right but but see, then it seems to me you still do run into some issues that don't seem to me to be faced by my analogy. So, for example, um, you could you could you could conceive of a, of a way in which a perfect game creator could be aware of what's going on in his world anywhere within his world all at that moment. But what about what's going to happen 10 minutes from now? Ah, yes, that brings us to the second issue, but it is related. And I think this issue alone might resolve the previous discussion we're having about omnipresence. So you mentioned in your previous video and tonight that one could, in The Sims, fast forward and rewind, mm -hmm. um, right? So um, it's not, this is the great thing about analogies, you can tweak them until they're right. So, and this is not an ad hoc tweaking <laughs> here. That belongs on a t-shirt. I'm not an ad hoc tweaker, <laughs> sure. but, um, but, but this is not an ad hoc tweaking. You could let, so just as you have imagined, now this is a key point and someone could miss the subtlety in this. Just as you have said, all right, Braxton, play fair with me now. No analogy's perfect. So we're starting after the story is already intact, mm -hmm. already in place, right? We're not considering the writing process because then that messes up the parallel well, timelines. Except that I did propose the possibility that the, that the author creates the entire story all in an instant. Okay, well. Okay, well that could work here too, but let's just imagine, let's just, let's just say, just as you would like to put it um, subsequent to uh, the writing of the story, so that the story is already in place when we begin using it as an analogy. Uh, uh, you could, let's imagine something like a B theory of time for, uh, for our VWCs, our virtual worlds, and let's imagine that the timeline has, has, is, is already played out and already being an unfortunate, necessary use of a tense term. But it's already played out, just like on a B theory of time, the whole timeline is already there, um, all, all at once, for lack of possible better terminology. And so you have this whole, you have, and from there, the creator is aware of everything that has happened, will happen, those terms don't even have any meaning. He knows what does happen in the world of the, in the virtual world. Um, and, and when we get to the incarnation later, he can even choose to which point he wants to, uh, incarnate, which is one of the coolest aspects of, of this analogy, I think. And you know where <laughs> I'm going with that, but that's, but anyway, I, I think that would result if, if you're willing to, if you're able to say we're using this analogy after it's already been written and that's where we're beginning the analogy. I'm saying 
after the virtual world is already intact. Okay, but here's here's so so there are other possible problems that I want to discuss with your analogy, but but going back to this issue of after the story's been written, it seems to me that there's a category difference between talking about the uh, a state the world is in after it's been written in my analogy versus the state of the world after it's played out um in your analogy right Not so in my one... in my case the the process oh, is the process itself transcends the world right because the um you know at at, at point x um, Tolkien might have conceived of the scene in which um, Frodo finds the, the one ring, right? Um, and, then, and then at some point, X plus one, um, the, uh, Tolkien might have conceived of a part earlier in the story. So you've got a process that's, that's happening, but it's totally independent from and transcends the process within the story, the process of the story playing out. Whereas if I'm not mistaken, and I very well may be, um, in your analogy, it sounds like you're talking about the process of the world itself playing out. And then at some point post that, the the game designer develops full knowledge of everything that's taking place. Am, am I misunderstanding? I think so, but uh, let me just go ahead and preface this because people that listen to my show know that I affirm an A theory of time, mm -hmm. and so I'm, I might be a bit disingenuous to play this card, but I think <laughs> I have two plays here. Um, so one would just be to say, no, it's like an A theory. So let me clarify that for anyone that might yeah, not know. Yeah, I don't even audience. know what A theory means. Okay, so A theory of time is the one that says, look, the past did exist, but it doesn't exist now. The future mm. will exist, but it doesn't exist yet. And the present is what exists. So the past did exist, but not anymore. The future will exist, but it doesn't exist yet. The present exists. Um, B and so that, you know, that's how most people naturally conceive of time functioning. Um, B theory of time says, no, actually the entire timeline, and this is where you again run into tensed problems, but the entire timeline is in place. Okay, it's already there, and and it, it, simultaneously, at least um, in in logical order, simultaneously. So, and that's the that's the view of time that all time travel movies play off of, because there actually is a 1964 somewhere, and you could go there if you had a way to get there. And so, so you have whereas on the A theory, no, 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 1964 doesn't exist anywhere. It's not real anymore, even though it was. So what I'm saying is, so on, the, so when we're thinking about the um, the virtual worlds like sims if it's like i have an option for both if it's an a theory and i affirm an a theory about reality that the past no longer exists future doesn't exist but it will the present does exist you could say about this i could make this move and say well you know like chris said a minute ago yeah a perfect author would be able to a perfect author would be able to know with with detail all of the you know minutia of his story we just don't have perfect authors here I could say, well, a perfect virtual world creator would know the would know the whole uh, the whole timeline just like God does. But of course, we're doing analogies here, and there is no virtual world creator who knows the whole timeline, uh, and there is no uh, author who gets the minutia of his story all correct. These are analogies. That would be to, to talk about the A theory, but but let's put that one aside because I don't think you'll like that one. But the B theory, where the whole thing is already set, and so the uh, creator knows the whole thing. Oh, it doesn't have to run through. 
Now, from the perspective of any particular moment, you know, you can fast forward, rewind in The Sims. From the perspective of any particular moment in the game, those Sims are experiencing the movement of time, <laughs> just like we do. But from the creator's perspective, who transcends that, even temporally, it's, it's all there. It's, it's always all was all there. And, and he can, and so he knows it all. That would okay. be an option. All right. Well, I don't want to focus too much on the time thing because it seems to me that there are other potential problems with the VWC analogy that, that I want to ask you about. One well, before, has, where you, where you go yeah. on, let me, let me say one thing. And this is the kind of thing I always have to say when you talk about, uh, you know, it, deeper issues is if that sounds too complicated or bizarre, that that you initially might think, well, that doesn't seem plausible. Not you, Chris, but you, the yeah, list, the proverbial you. Recall that one of the functions that we've been talking about from the beginning that Chris talked about before I even uh, came on the show is that one of the functions in these virtual worlds, at least the Sims, is the ability to move backward and forward in time like that. Sure. Yeah. yeah, so like you can't do that with World of Warcraft, but you can do that with The Sims. At least you can move forward. You can't typically move backwards. Well, if um, we can imagine that you could move backwards. Right, exactly, yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah, and, and as you've already said, there are going to be flaws in all of these analogies. But um, but here, here, let me ask you about this potential flaw in the VWC analogy. And actually, before I do, um, I don't think you and I ever discussed what sort of time constraints we have on this episode. And I want to make sure that I'm respectful of your time. How much more time do you think you are comfortable sparing? Um, I have to be back at work at eight tomorrow morning, but I'm already here. So <laughs> I'll tell you what I told my wife, I would try to do a hard stop after two hours. So how about we go for one more hour max? Is that good? With That's you? fine with me. I feel like we just started. This is fun. I know. I wonder if anyone in the chat thinks this is fun. I hope so because I think it's really fun. Um, so anyway, uh, so so the the first of the potential problems that I want to press you on with your analogy is is the, um, the the means by which the game designer has uh, I, I was about to say acquires but that would that would already be sort of um, uh, poisoning the well it, the means by which the game designer designer has knowledge of the entire timeline and world within the virtual world. Um, it seems to me that in that analogy, the knowledge, however infinite it might be, however complete it might be, is still one that is acquired uh, in a sense passively. You know, the, the, the game designer receives through his or her senses um, the, the knowledge of, even if it happens all in an instant, Right by by somehow turning the fast forward button on in, on on infinite fast forward or something, he's the, the author the, the the game designer still receives as input, as as stimulus if you will the 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 um all of the details at all times and places within the virtual world, whereas um, there's nothing um, passive and receptive about at least my version of the author analogy. We could talk about differences with say Stephen King, uh, given his peculiar ways in which he claims to write stories. Um, if you don't think that this is as much of a flaw as I am suggesting it might be, why not? Is that something you could talk about? Yeah, so first of all, I embrace that as a flaw. That is a weakness of the analogy. But at the same time, um, I think that the... Uh, I'd love to hear how your analogy, the authorship analogy, bypasses the same problem. Because while it is true that, let's say, the game designer... Let, let, let's say, taking free will into account here, Let's say that the game designer, um, creator, uh, 
creates this game such that all of the movements and everything are are done instantaneously. And when he pulls, let's say, a DVD or a hard drive out, he he's got all of that already done. The, no, like from the perspective of any sim in the game, they're going through their timeline, but he had it all instantaneously done, and he can look at it and see it. That's the weakness right there that he has to look at it and see it. That's true. Mm. But from where I'm sitting, and I'd love to hear how you resolve this, because I'm sure you've thought about it, it, it seemed to me that the reason you wanted to start, one of the reasons you wanted to start after the story is already in existence in the mind of the uh, creator or author, is because the author would be subject to the same problem. He may not be looking to something external to himself to get the story, but he is still um, learning the story as he creates it himself. Right. I hear that. And that's why I, I said earlier that um, I'm not necessarily, even though I might have put it in these terms in that episode, uh, I'm not necessarily suggesting that we're starting at some point in the author's timeline um, after he has developed some of the story. Um, you, you could just tweak my analogy to say that um, the author being perfect and, and infinite, if, if, you know, to the extent that God is perfect and infinite, um, creates every detail of the story all instantaneously and at that moment um that at that moment the author knows every detail of the story at all times and places within the story um without any sort of passive reception without receiving input in any sense whether that's via sight or or sound or a cable being plugged right into the back of the neck if, if we're going to do the virtual world combine it with the matrix you know or something like that so so i'm not sure that my analogy falls victim to the same but see, flaw. at that point, what, what my response would be, and this is legitimately the response, like not looking for a way to knock it down. Yeah, yeah. But my legitimate response to that is, but that's not how authors write stories. That that's to give the that's to give the the thing that you're using to analogize 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 God. You're just making him God and giving well, him a non-human characteristic that way. I, I'm not. I'm not convinced. Um, yes, it's true that there's no author in human history who has come up with an entire novel all in an instant. But I'm not prepared to say that it's equally true that there has never been any scene with any even slight amount of detail that hasn't been conceived of all instantaneously by its author, right? So if um, I could, I think in an instant I could create in my mind a very small, you know, a very limited detail scene and putting, you know, conceiving of that scene doesn't require any any passage of time in, in order for me to construct it. I can conceive of it all instantaneously, albeit on an incredibly tiny scale relative to something like, say, Middle Earth and, and, and that and, and Tolkien's creation. So I'm just suggesting that you expand that in infinite, you know, to an infinite degree. Um, and an author with uh, that has that is much more intelligent and um, creative than I am could create instantaneously a little bit more of a detailed scene and you just keep increasing the degree. I'm not sure that you can I'm not saying that's perfect, but that seems to me to be at least conceptually feasible. Whereas in the case of the virtual world, I can't think of any way for the author, for the game designer to know everything that happens in the world without receiving it from without. I, okay. So here's what I'm seeing with that. And tell me if you, I don't think you do agree based on what you've said, but since to my mind, even your conception of a very basic scene um, I, I still maintain, and I think it's a, 
it's I think it's a fact, and you'd probably agree with me in this very hyper literal way that that does involve some passage of time. Um, neurons firing, uh, blood flow in your brain. I mean, you know, th those sorts of things. And so I would say that, and of course it just seems odd, right? Well, it seems odd to say, okay, we're going to, we're going to think of something that you can relate to in the, in the, in time and space now, that is a picture of how God relates to the universe. And then what we're using to analogize it, analogize it, uh, analogize it does seem like it's not the way that it works. But I, here's what I want to say about it. I see that as uh, an important weakness there. Maybe it's not a big deal. Uh, but I and, and I admit, I wholeheartedly admit that because I'm not an open theist, an open theist would be fine with my analogy. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> but, <laughs> that's true. But but since I'm not an open theist, I admit that the analogy, this is one of those places where I would say I'm pushing up against the limits of the analogy because sure. But really what I think that gets to the fact that, 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 um, on, on my view, the game creator does have to look down upon his creation and see, and in that sense, learn. Hmm. And I'm not convinced that your analogy gets away from that, True. but I hear what you're saying. Um, I, 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 um, I think that's just the limits of, of, I think that's pushing up against the limits of the analogy. There was something else I was going to say about that. Oh, and it could just be part of the problem is that in the one, on the one hand, you've got a guy who is creating the story. Like you said, nothing's coming in. So it's all his thing. There's nothing to learn. He knows it, right? He's the one making it up. Whereas on the, on the game creator, there's free will actions of these players in the game or characters, non-player characters in the game. And so he has to look down. Can I just say, by the way, I love that you know what a non-player character is. A lot of people would have no idea what you mean by that. Anyway, go I've ahead. I've been playing games for ages, man. <laughs> uh, so so the, the bottom line is he, he has to look and see what these non-player characters are doing. What we may be hitting here is just a whole other theological discussion about how God on a libertarian model knows the future actions of free creatures. Hmm. And that, could, that may just be a, a different issue. True. And no analogy I can think of would allow for in our in the in, in time and space as we experience it, someone being able to know the future actions of free creatures. So that's where the analogy ha it has to be the edge of the analogy for me. I understand. Let me so uh, let me turn then to another possible. I, I've got a few of these I just want to discuss, and and honestly, I'd be fine if we didn't get much into the application side of things because I think just the competing analogies is interesting enough. But, is this going uh, how you wanted it to go, or are we messing everything up? No, no, this is great. Um, this is exactly the kind of free flowing conversation where neither of us know exactly where it's going to go that I, that I'd hoped to have, and that I think would be most interesting, you know, for for our viewers. But um, how about? Uh, there, there are a few here, um, you know, some that I don't think it's going to behoove us to spend any time on. So, for example, in the case of a virtual world, even though the whole timeline of the world theoretically in some way could could end up being known by the designer uh, at some point, nevertheless, uh, and even though the, the designer himself or herself transcends the virtual world, nevertheless, the all of the all of the things that take place in that world, um, whether his own in or her own, uh, obviously in the case of God, I wouldn't call him her, but in the case of I think we're fine with he. 
I'll say, I'll go with he. I'm so into academia right now that I've got I know. he and her. Anyway, I get it. Uh, they, he and she. Just and say me. they. They. Oh gosh, that's worse for me. I can't do that because I, I I can't I can't get away from thinking of they as plural. But anyway, um, uh, so so in the virtual world example, the designer um does transcend the virtual world, but the virtual world only is able to operate insofar as everything that's taking place in it is taking place uh, is, is being produced by the firing of transistors and you know things like that um in the hardware uh, apart from which it wouldn't exist at all and that hardware obviously isn't a part of the designer but i think that we could probably come up with creative ways around that so i'm more interested i, I in... have one is the okay. point you're saying here how does he sustain that how is it sustained by the creator well it's more that in that analogy everything that takes place in the in the world is the um direct result of um firing not just direct in the sense that a story is the direct result of its author's conception but in the sense that at any given moment anything is only happening in the world because transistors and things are firing on a motherboard um, apart from which that wouldn't actually happen. And that motherboard is not part of the story world it's or the, the virtual world. It's part of the designer's world. And so even if you were to replace the hardware with, let's say you had a some sort of a um, cybernetic chip implanted in the in the designer's mind or brain and um, that enabled this virtual world to play out in the designer's brain somehow all of the things that take place there would still be the direct result of firing of neurons in the cybernetically enhanced brain of the designer right so you've still got at any given moment in the story world things are happening as a direct result of the things that are happening in the real world it seems to me yeah, what I was going to say is in terms of the world being sustained by the creator such that it only exists insofar as the creator allows it or wants it to exist, you could easily imagine that he's that, that the creator is in some way directly upholding the world by peddling a cycle or something that generates right, right. the power for it or something. Yeah, those are the kind of things. That that you just described, the fact that there is underlying hardware that's allowing the creator to do this, um, would be, um, well, I mean, I guess well, we're not just, talking about, if we were talking about books, I would say, well, okay, there's pages and ink there, big deal. But you're taught, you're imagining just, uh, the thinking it out in his own mind. Uh, but if you want that, if, if that point goes, that's, that's a fair criticism. I don't think it's a criticism that would bother many people, but if, so I'll just let that stand. That's fine. Well, that's fine. But just to be clear, I'm not necessarily talking about the, the, um, the upholding of creation that God does. I'm rather talking about, um, I, I know you said, let's, if we can put scare quotes around experience when talking about what a robot experience is, you mm -hmm. said, well, we can do the same thing with these non-player characters yeah. in the virtual yeah. world. But even then, even if, to whatever extent you put scare quotes around that, anything that the non-player character thinks or feels or does is so thought, felt, or done um, as a direct result of the of a particular hardware, you know, particular transistor firing or whatever on the motherboard, and and in the time of that 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 firing of of the of the of the hardware, that that activity that takes place in the hardware is having a direct and immutable result uh, on the. Uh, in fact, let me let me back up a second. You and I on the phone, and this is something we may get to if we've got time today. 
<laughs> Josh says in the chat, I should go bald so that you and I can be bald brothers. Uh, I, I've told my wife somewhat jokingly that if I ever, that if my bald spot up here ever gets big enough, then I'll, then I'll bick it bald. So maybe one day Braxton <laughs> and I can be bald bros. Um, when you and I were talking on the phone about this, I, uh, I, or even at lunch with Paul Copan and stuff, I said that in theological determinism, when a person in the real in our world in the created order does something whatever that might be there's nothing from without the created order even in theological determinism or at least in my variant of theological determinism uh that is causing that to happen right there's no chain of dominoes right there's just at, at, at a particular point in time in the story in the author story analogy a character does something but there's no there's no correspondence between the timeline of the author and the timeline in the story where something crosses that boundary to make it happen but in the case of the virtual world everything that happens within the timeline of that world and at every place within that world is the direct result of one of these crossings over right the crossing over from the world in which the hardware is functioning into the story world or the virtual world to cause the non-player character to act and think and feel in some particular way. That's really the, the thing that, in fact, arguably, this would be even worse for a libertarian like you uh, than my analogy in that respect. So that's, that's kind of what I'm honing in on, but I'll give you a last word on that before I offer my next <clears throat> objection. Oh, well, it doesn't have to be the last word, but whatever you want. Um, I think obviously I'm admitting that uh, and try to do so from the jump that yes, Sims are fully deterministic. Uh, there, there's no way of getting around that, but that's, 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 but they, they appear to us, right. Playing the game to be functioning freely. And so well, the, not the designer, the designer I'm, knows I'm what code causes the non-player characters to do what they do. Well, that's fine, but for the but who are you analogizing this for? Is the, the question. Designer. So, so no, no, no it, but I mean, who are you? Who would you present this analogy to? Understood. Yeah, I'm obviously not presenting it to God. Right. You're not. You're not presenting <laughs> the analogy to God. So, anyone you present this analogy to is going to think, okay, I at least see prima facie. It appears as though most people who have a third grade education in today's world know that these Sims are not really free in, in, <laughs> in the libertarian sense, right? But they know or about- Or even in a compatibilistic sense. Okay, even that way. But, but, they, but they do appear to be. They appear to be deciding not to go to the bathroom and then to wet themselves in the front lawn, which makes no sense. But human beings <laughs> do equally stupid things every day, right? It, so, so it appears to them to be free. And that's, a, that's all I need, I think, for the analogy. But if we wanted to press the analogy uh, further, uh, uh, I would I would just grant it and say it doesn't go there. It doesn't go that far. But I don't think that the story analogy does either because I do have sympathies with the notion that your story analogy, if, okay, in the story, we may not get to see the causal connections that lead to particular things happening. We only see those insofar as the author gives us those about the story. But or for himself, as much as he thinks, has thought about that. But, and, and I get your concern that, we d that there's a difference between causal determinism, which you define as necessarily naturalistic determinism, versus... No, uh, I mean, a, a, the a theistic de determinist could be a causal determinist. Could be a causal determinist, okay. Yeah. I, I see, but I see, um, but I, I don't know how that, how that plays out, because I, I understand that you're not a naturalist. I'm not confused about that. 
Yeah. Um, but <laughs> but at the same time, I think if if I think that, um, I mean I. I'm probably more deterministic than you insofar as I believe that there is a heck of a lot of causal determinism going on in the world all the time. I just think, I just think that um, it's a different situation with agents who are making choices sometimes. That, that's, that's right. Well, let's explore that a little bit. So okay. let's say that in this hypothetical story, um, an author conceives of all in an instant because the author has superpowers <laughs> that I'm granting him. Mm -hmm. um, let's say that there's a scene in which a the protagonist tips over they first in a series of dominoes, all right? Mm -hmm. So in this scene, um, you've got two um, actions uh, minimal that are taking place. One is the evidently willful action on the part of the protagonist to tip over that first domino but the other action is the action of any other domino that is tipped over by the domino before it and what i'm proposing is that that is causal determinism because any given um domino falling is directly caused by a domino that fell before it the author but is describing causal determinism the author the author's world that he has conceived of is one in which causal determinism sometimes okay. features. Yeah, okay. Whereas if you were to, the, the, the author could conceive, could conceive of, of that scene at a virtually infinite degree of detail and yet still conceive of the protagonist simply making the free choice to tip over that first domino. And it's not merely that the reader of the story, which doesn't exist in the analogy, but, but hypothetically speaking, it's not just that the reader of the story isn't exposed to whatever causal chains led uh, the protagonist to tip over that domino. It's that the author has not, it, 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 that's not the world in which the uh, the world the author has conceived of. The world hasn't the, the author hasn't conceived of a scene in which something causes the protagonist to tip over that domino. The protagonist simply chooses to. In other um, words, the, the author is is presenting in the story. He's creating in the story a free choice in the mind of the individual. In the sense that, obviously, you and I have talked about this. It's still determined by the author just not in the way that many people characterize Calvinism, right? Of causal right. determinism. So That's right. It's, because, it's, but but, but oh, the, point, the point that you want to make is, in the author writing this, he is then able to present an agent making a choice that is at least free from the causal determinism of the setting in which he's placed. Right. Yeah. So, and, and this goes back to you know, when you and I have talked about this, there are a couple of details of our conversations that are directly relevant here. One is, um, one of the things that spurred us having this very conversation right now was you, your appearance on Unbelievable with, was it Dan Barker? Yes. Um, and you made the, you offered the argument that we as human beings virtually universally um, intuit uh, that we have libertarian free will, um, something along those lines. And so any argument that would be offered by a determinist would have to overcome that seemingly almost universal, if not universal, intuition. And what I proposed was that that's actually an incomplete and therefore inaccurate description of the intuition. 
What I proposed is that what we intuit is that there isn't anything that is at any given moment causing us to do what we choose to do. Um, no matter what our influences in wait, our wait, past. Wait, wait, back up for yeah. precision here. Sure. You're saying what we intuit is that you're not saying that we intuit that nothing determines our actions. You're saying that what we intuit is that nothing worldly determines our actions. Correct. Nothing, nothing within the time space continuum of which we're a part. Right. So, so if you were somehow to be able to look into um, the mind of the protagonist in the scene that I'm describing from moment right, X, yeah. uh, what? betray you well that was you're right that is that's who we were talking about when we when we were discussing this on the phone i said when when atreyu makes the decision to go through these i think it's called the swamp of sadness or something where ultimately his horse dies if I you were able to twitter. look in if, what's that twitter is the swamp of sadness <laughs> sometimes the youtube comment threads are pretty bad too um <laughs> But uh, but if you look, if you were to look into the the theoretical Atreyu's mind at the moment that he makes the decision to go through the swamp of sadness, causal determinism mm -hmm. suggests, it seems to me, based on my very meager uh, knowledge of the literature, causal determinism would entail you being able to identify uh, again, pr assuming you would have full access to everything that's happening at that moment within Atreyu's brain and everything, you would be able to identify a causal chain whereby the effect of one cause is in fact the, uh, the, the, the choice in Atreus' mind to go through the, the Swamp of Sadness. If now, you have could... knowledge about everything, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Um, and I think, but, but in reality, um, it seems to me that an author could conceive of a story in which uh, the, the Atreyu, to continue with this example, there's nothing that causes him to do that. He makes a willful, deliberative process. There, or, or even he could just choose, regardless of the circumstances, to just sit down and stare at the sky and, and identify pictures in the clouds. You know, he, he could do that despite all of the pressures upon him from the rest of the world to try and, you know, prevent the nothing from taking over. Or you could, you know, despite his upbringing, despite his member of that, being a part of that tribe of, of hunters that he's a part of, which makes him the person that goes and does it. Despite all of that, he could still choose to do something totally stupid and irrelevant to the story because he's a free agent in the world that the author has created. And I'm suggesting that theological determinism uh, uh, could be like that, where yes, sometimes in our world, things are causally determined, but at other times, an agent simply chooses to do something. And that has been determined, but there's nothing in time and, and in space that is causing that choice to manifest. So three things about that. One yeah. is just for the listeners, because I know you and I have already talked about this. When we talk about different um, analogies for determinism, the theological determinism that you find incorrect or inappropriate, I think is the word you used, like uh, a marionette uh, or um, uh, a robot or someone being coerced or whatever, um, uh, these are all things... For example, you didn't say this, but these are all things that Guillaume Bignon brings up in his book on this issue. And he goes through all of the examples that people like me have used. Uh, and I've tried not to, um, but uh, ever since we've started talking about this, but like a marionette or a robot or whatever else, he points out relevant differences between those situations and our situation. 
And what I want to say is, okay, we may need to use different analogies for precision's sake, which is what you're pushing for, and uh, to be hospitable to the Calvinist here. But at the same time, the thing that I'm pointing out is the same about all of those analogies and is the same. The one feature that's it's, it's um, brought about differently and it manifests differently. But the one thing is the same with the author writing a story as with each of those things is that there is something determining the action that is outside of the agents. And in the case of the uh, case of Atreyu, let's say um, he's not aware of what's determining his actions but there is something outside of himself. Um, the, the, the difference would be the distance outside of himself, because you'd want to say there's nothing in the world that has been created there that's determining his actions. Fair enough. But there's something further outside of himself that is determining his actions, albeit through secondary causes. OK, but if I if I challenge you a little bit on this, will you still remember what the other two things you wanted to say were? Or do you want me to let you cover those before I push back uh... on that one? Let, let me let me just throw them out there. Good. Okay. So, so, this, so this, and we can talk about it in more detail if you want to. Yeah. So the second thing is, um, all analogies. So you can make up something that's not real, <laughs> and 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 then present an analogy for it, right? And say it could be like this: this thing that I've decided is real. Not I'm not, and I don't mean that inhospitably. But this yeah. thing that I've completely made up that may not even logically work. It's kind of like this, right? And so what I would say is we don't have, and I said this to you on the phone, and, and, um, and so I'm sure you've thought about it more and you probably have a fuller response now, but we don't have Atreyu in front of us to ask him what his intuitions are like. We don't know what, it, what Atreyu intuits about the world to then say, since I think Atreyu or any fictional character would uh, intuit his cho free will or the nature of free will this way, which we also couldn't know, I think that's how we do it. And so those are the other two things. That, number one, um, you can make up something that might not be real and provide an analogy, but that doesn't help it be real. And then the second thing is we don't have a tray you to ask him what his intuitions are like. Gotcha. So there's nothing about that second point that I can speak to, but let me speak to the first two. Um, so... You have been careful, if I'm not mistaken, and do correct me if I'm wrong, um, you've been careful to define libertarian freedom, at least from your perspective, not as the ability to do, ability to do other than you do, but rather that the, the decision to do something originates from within the agent. Is that right? I think that what is both sufficient and necessary is that nothing external to the agent determined the agent's actions. But... I do think much of the time we have the principle of alternative possibilities where we could have done other than whatever we ended up doing. I just, I, you know, I don't know if you're familiar with Frankfurt type examples, but I think they do establish for us that there are conceivable cases where, where it's not a live option that one would do other than whatever one ended up doing, but they can still be libertarianly free. Well, like, so for example, um, if you're sitting in your living room watching, uh, some show that I won't mention that you and I talked about we were watching before the show because we don't want people to know we watch it. You, you might be sitting in the living room watching that show and then all of a sudden, assuming your front door is anywhere near your living room, and I don't know, but if it is, it is. imagine your front door gets kicked open and somebody throws a bee's nest into your lap while you're watching the show. And all of a sudden the bees go crazy. You could conceivably sit there and allow yourself to be stung by all these thousands of bees while you're watching the show, but everyone knows you wouldn't. 
we all know what you would do, which is you would leave the room, you'd get the heck out of Dodge to avoid being stung by the hundreds of bees. Is that kind of what you're saying? Is that we can continue no, these I'll cases? No, I'll just, I'll just sketch out real quick one of Frankfurt's examples. Okay. Because I, there I could libertarianly choose to stay there. But you're right that I wouldn't. But That's my there point. are yeah. weirdos who might. So here, here's an example real quick. Um, let's say that uh, the election between um, uh, Biden and Trump came down to what well, it did come down to fewer votes than we thought. But let's say um, it came down to one vote, which isn't even possible the way it's set up. But let's sure. just imagine. OK. And um, and let's say that person uh, uh, is kidnapped by um, uh, Biden or Harris um, and a chip is implanted in their brain. Now, when they go to the voting booth the next day, they're they, let's say if the person chooses to vote, they want him to vote for Biden. Are you with me? I am. If, if he chooses, if the person chooses to vote for Biden, then uh, then they will not activate this chip that will force them to change their mind. So if they freely choose to vote for Biden, they can vote for Biden and it was a completely libertarian choice. See, if they, if they don't, if they, if they, if, if the person goes in, they want this person to vote for Biden, they don't know what he's going to do. But if they go in and he moves to vote for Biden, they're not going to intervene. That's his libertarianly free choice. But if he decides to vote for Trump, the chip is going to recognize that and they can push a button that will change his mind such that he will vote for Biden. The point is, in either case, he will vote for Biden. There's not right. another thing that will possibly happen. However, if he is artificially manipulated, then that's not libertarian freedom. But if he goes in there and naturally votes for Biden because that's what he wants to do and because nothing external to him determined it, yeah. it's still libertarian freedom even though there's only ever one thing he could do. So maybe a – okay, that, yeah, that's fine. Okay, And, and but, I think because of that, because of that, I think it is possible – that there are things, many things like that in the world where we don't know it, but we only had one thing we could possibly choose to do. But, um, but I don't think that's always the case. So right. So here's yeah. here's a, a, a simpler, although perhaps not as uh, complete analogy for what I think you're describing that uh, my best friend has given me before, and that he's used actually in defense of compatibilism. He said, which I've told him recently, I don't think it works as that. But he said, um, imagine you go to a, an ice cream shop, and you're told that you have the choice between chocolate, strawberry, and vanilla. And let's say you choose chocolate because that's your favorite flavor. You eat it, and then lo and behold, your the the ice cream the the parlor the shop owner reveals that he never actually had strawberry or vanilla. There was no way you could have actually eaten strawberry or vanilla, um, but and you libertarianly libertarianly chose chocolate. Is is that is that kind of like what you're talking about? So in a situation like that, what I would say is. I think that often we conflate two things. Yeah, what you're actually, you know where I'm going with this? I think you're going to distinguish between what you actually do do or what you're, what you do do versus the choice to do it. Yeah. Well, we're like talking that? about free will, right? So right. I think I'm, I can will to have chocolate ice cream, whether it's available to me or not. Correct. Um, that right. may not matter to much, many people, but, um, I can will, you know, like many Calvinists will say, well, you can't will to fly like a bird. Because it's not your nature. You don't have a bird nature. Yeah. Well, I'm sorry, but I have many times willed to fly like a bird. I think every little boy has, uh, maybe every little girl. 
but I just couldn't deliver to myself on it. Exactly. Right. <laughs> right. And that's along the lines of the very reason I told my friend I don't think that that's going to work. But, but putting all that aside, let me address that first thing that you said, which is that ultimately this is still determined from outside of the agent, even in my analogy, and therefore still suffers from what you see as the fundamental flaw. But here's the reason why the precision is important to me, is because when you offer the analogies of robots and dominoes and, and uh, puppets and things like that, it's not merely that the choice is determined from outside of the agent. It's that the, it's that the agent isn't in fact... Uh, it's that the choice doesn't originate in any sense within the agent, right? So the agent is more like a passive medium through which the uh, determiner's uh, choice plays out, right? So in the case of a puppet, um, the string pulled by the puppeteer is what causes the arm to move. In the case of a robot, uh, a non-player character in a video game, the firing of the motherboard in a particular way causes the non-player character to do what it does and, and so on and so forth. But it seems to me that in the story author analogy, at least in the way that I've cashed it out, it's not true to say that it is, that, that the choice originates from without and then just full stop. It seems to me that the more accurate way to put it would be that the choice originates both within the mind of the author and the mind of the character who makes a choice. Because if you're if you had a, if you had the ability to see into the character's mind at the moment that the character chooses to do something, you're not going to see anything cause uh, you're not gonna, you're, if you were to say where did the choice originate and you and you were able to see that there were no causal chains leading up to that choice, it would appear to materialize out of nowhere. Mm -hmm. And so you so the more accurate way to put it would be that in in the analogy I'm offering, the choice to do something originates both within the mind of the author and within the mm -hmm. mind of the agent, and that means that perhaps it's not as um, prone to the the, the the flaw that you're identifying as puppets and robots and things. Well, I, I so what I think you have there is a great analogy then for the way you conceive of this yeah. working out theologically, and that's what you want to do with your analogy, right? I want one that reflects how I see it coming out. You've got well, one that you think reflects the way you're bringing it out. Now, the problem, um, the problem there is, you may that may change it a little bit from in an important way from the, I'm still not sure about the robot example because of the RoboCop example that you already know where I, what I'm talking about, where they put a chip in RoboCop's head and the choice is very much a choice on the part of the person controlling RoboCop via the chip in his head, but he experiences it as though it's his free choice. So they're both choosing to do it. They're both doing what they want to do. But they there's, just, go ahead. But there's an identifiable uh, connection in time between the firing of the chip and the firing of the neuron in Robocop's brain that causes him to choose what he thinks he's choosing to do. And I'm suggesting that in the case of my analogy, there's no such thing. Right. So what you have there is the same outcome, which I think you agree on. Ultimately, it's uh, in both cases, what Robocop determines to do and what Atreyu determines to do was determined by someone else in, in Atreyu's case, the author. Um, and it's just that we can't find how it happened and, it, and no one in that world could find possibly how it happened unless it was revealed to them or, and, or, or there is no how it simply is that Atreyu chose well, to do what he chose to do within the story. Yeah. Right. But, the, but, the, but we know that the reason he chose to do what he did in the story is because that's what the author wanted. 
Sure, but that's not the case. That's not all there is to the RoboCop example. In the RoboCop example, it's not merely that the the creator of that chip wanted a RoboCop to act in a certain way. It's that the chip uh, fires and 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 there's a there's a domino there, there's a domino. Series. Yeah, you can, it, it's more it's more directly physically causal that way in the physical universe. Physically, temporally, in every imaginable way. Um, apart from transcendence yeah it, it caught there's a direct chain there and so there is no it, it, what, what i'm proposing is that it boils down to this in all these other analogies including robocop the choice truly does originate in the determiner um full stop and at any given point within the process that leads to an agent doing something there's an unbroken series of dominoes as it were that leads to that choice being made by the agent but in the case of the story author analogy um it yes the the choice for the agent to do something originates in the mind of the author but it also in 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 any conceivable way originates in the mind of the agent it just happens so that that was determined so here's what I want the audience to hear because they haven't heard our previous conversations <laughs> sure. and you've referenced them some. Here's what I think you and I uh, have come down on. Yeah. And that is that you agree with me that, yes, Braxton, the thing that bothers you most about, uh, you know, the, the, the story analogy or the way that works there or any of these other analogies, we're not talking about you, but about me. The thing that bothers me is the determinism that is there that I don't think the Bible teaches and that I don't think we experience, you do. All right. That's, that's just two sides of the age old debate. Right. But, um, but that doesn't help for me. And most, most non-Calvinists aren't going to think that makes the difference that it needs to, to help out with moral responsibility and the nature of God. I'm However, glad you used... Go ahead. I'm sorry. I'm sorry go ahead. Uh, 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 how, but at the same time, You've said to me before, even if you want to say something about that, I think what you've said to me before is, I get that you're not happy with that, Braxton, but what matters to me is that when we talk about these issues, it's correctly articulated because that correct articulation is what I'm teaching and want to be able to defend. So please don't use marionettes and robots. Use yeah, I mean, that's an, that's an important part of it. But, but, but I also think that it's at least possible, um, and time will tell, that if we're correct with the analogy, it may resolve the problem. And, and let me back up here a second and say, I want to distinguish between your discomfort, um, for <laughs> for lack of a better way of putting it, I want to yeah. distinguish between your discomfort with the- I um, am uncomfortable with, with it. <laughs> right, your discomfort with the determinism versus um, rational objections to determinism. And what I'm, I'm proposing- well, I know you. I, I know you have both, but I'm suggesting that yeah. perhaps the analogy resolves the latter, even if it leaves you still uncomfortable with determinism. Because okay. take moral responsibility, for example. I totally intuit with you that a puppet cannot be held responsible for slapping the president because all that the hand of the puppet's doing is moving with the string that's pulled. Right. Same with um, Robocop. Same with RoboCop, yeah. I don't see how RoboCop could be held morally accountable for something that he is directly caused and, and immutably caused by a chip firing an instant in time prior to him doing it. Uh, he, he's not choosing to do anything. He's simply a domino in a series of dominoes. But what I'm proposing is that in the story analogy, um, the story analogy, or story model, to use a phrase you used earlier, I'm proposing that we would fully expect characters in story to be held accountable for their actions because there is nothing, there, there is no chain of dominoes of which they're a part. They choose to do what they do. And yes, it was determined and we might be uncomfortable with that, but would we, but can we still say that uh, it would be 
in, inappropriate for a trial scene to take place within the story and for that character to be held accountable for his murder in the story, the antagonist. I, I don't think we would say, oh, no, the, the character was just doing what the character was written to do, so they, they can't, he can't be no. tried for that. No, but if you're right, but that's because the people within the story are not aware of what's actually going on, that they're in a story. But if someone were to show up, and this maybe this will bleed into our incarnation, I think we definitely need to get to the incarnation. That's what I wanted to finish with, yeah. Okay, but, but, um, but if someone showed up in the story and said, I am the author, I am the creator, hmm. or no, 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 let's not do that. Let's not do that, because that's too close to the incarnation. It doesn't achieve what I want to achieve. Let's just say that someone shows up and says, I am privy to information that this individual who murdered someone in the story and is on trial for it was determined to do this by the hand of an author who is crafting this story and could convince to, to, the, to the jury satisfaction that that really did happen. Now, that's obviously willing suspension of disbelief is out the window, but let's just say that happened and they're now convinced of this. I don't think they're just going to be okay with going ahead as business as usual. I think at that point what's going to happen is a big philosophical discussion is going to break out like we're having right now. Now, I think that's very likely. I don't think that's going to instantaneously resolve the problem. I, I, I would push back on the language of is crafting. That's the whole point of my... Or has and craft. How, well, even that's, yeah. as you've already pointed out, inappropriate because there's no overlap between the timelines. But but yes, I, I agree with you. It's not going to immediately resolve the problem, but it's going to be a lot harder, I think, to easily identify this problem with more responsibility than in the case of robots and puppets. Well, and, and I see why. I really do see why. Because I'm like I said at the beginning of this, I'm 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 wanting to get in your head a little bit here. That's a dangerous um, thing to want to do. <laughs> you've been getting in my head ahead of time all night, but <laughs> But I, I really do want to get in your head and see how all this furniture makes sense to you. But um, the, the reality is I, I get how you get there because you're saying, look, you can point to the chip in RoboCop's head that led to them, him doing this. So it's not really his fault because these people determined everything that he would do. I'm still looking at it and saying, all right, I'll give you this, Chris. The marionette is insufficient. Maybe RoboCop is insufficient. I'm still not 100% sure, but I understand why you get there. But the, but the point, the, the reason that he's not morally responsible is because someone external to him determined his actions, determined what he would want, um, determined how he would act and what he would say and what he would do, and even how he held the knife as he stabbed someone. All of those things were determined unchangeably by someone outside of the individual. That's true on the story example, and that's, that's true right. on RoboCop, and that's true on all of those. And it's not just that I'm uncomfortable with that. It's that I think that that presents major problems for our sense of justice and morality and all those kind of things. But again, I don't think that it's easy or at least as easy to articulate uh, and identify what that problem actually is in this analogy than with puppets and robots. Because in puppets and robots, like I said, you've got just this mindless chain of dominoes. Um, I mean, yes, it's a chip interacting with neurons, but the point is, in the case of RoboCop, you've got what is essentially equivalent to a chain of dominoes, and we wouldn't hold a domino responsible for falling when it's simply caused to fall by a previous domino, but you have nothing like that in the story analogy. Nevertheless, we could go round and round and round on this. I want to address the second thing you said really quick and then ask you a question from one of the audience members. The The second point you said was we can, we can make up an analogy to uh, reflect a world that we 
think exists, whether or not it actually does, whether or not it's feasible, et cetera, et cetera. And you're right, we could do that. But as I told you on the phone, if, if you and you probably recall this, um, I personally don't think that I have latched onto this analogy as sort of an ad hoc way of trying to address the challenge. You're not, right? ad I'm not just hoc trying to tweaking. What's that? You're not ad hoc tweaking. I'm not. I don't think I'm ad hoc tweaking. Well, I mean, I have been doing that throughout this episode, I'm sure. But in terms of just deciding upon this analogy tentatively, it wasn't an order. It wasn't an ad hoc attempt to answer a challenge. It's because of all those reasons that I gave in the first thirty minutes or whatever of my episode last show. That um, that the only analogy I can see that captures all of those those aspects of the God creation relationship uh, is this story analogy. And if it just so happens to make the challenge uh, to, to, to dull the teeth a little bit on the challenge of moral responsibility to determinism, well, then I'm, I'm happy to, to serendipitously benefit from that result. But listen, I want to, um, we, we've only got about 15 more minutes and I want to give, I, I told uh, about 15 minutes ago, I told the people in chat, that if they wanted me to ask you a question to tag me and I would ask you, and I've only gotten one so far, and I want to pose that to you before we finish on incarnation. Um, Kyperian Berean says in the chat, not sure if Braxton has already answered this question, but I'm just going to ask it again. And, and this is, you'll see, this is perfect as we start to transition into incarnation and away from determinism. He asks, is Braxton open to being a Calvinist? Now, obviously, what just what open means is going to be uh, up for grabs, but just answer that as, as openly as and yeah. in, in, any, so, in any way you want. And he's the same one that said it looked like things were getting fiery. I haven't felt It wasn't that. fiery at all. I'm loving it. Yeah. <laughs> we're, we're, but, we're having a blast. Um, but uh, so in my younger days, you know, many of us who have been preachers and uh, in any sense, I don't know if I'm an alpha male, but people who have those kind of positions, they tend to say things bombastically and then later regret them. And in my younger days, I, I, like in my early 20s, I, I would say things, not from the pulpit, but privately with people, I would say things like, if I found out that Calvinism was true, I don't know if I could be a Christian. I don't know mm -hmm. if I... Um, uh, and you mean of course, if it's what the Bible taught, you don't know that you could believe it, is what you're saying? No, I could I, I could believe it. I might not believe on it. Um, and like, I may not... Understood. Like, you, yeah. might, you, you might refuse to worship that God if you found out that that God predetermines things. Yeah, now that is a horrific thing to say for someone who doesn't believe I can be Cartesianly certain about this issue, 100% certain about this issue. I'm strongly convinced that Calvinism does not adequately represent what the Bible teaches. However, um, if it, I, don't, I wouldn't say that at all anymore. Now, on the flip side, I can't be too hard on my younger self and betray <laughs> him too much, because if I did say that, it would only be because God determined me like an author writing me to say it. But um, but but honestly, though, no, I, I'm ashamed I ever said anything like that. And if Calvinism did turn out to be true in my mind, like if I was convinced that Calvinism was true, I'd be a Calvinist. I mean, uh, it's it's like the disciples saying to Jesus, to whom shall we go? You know, you have the way of life. Yeah, I, I couldn't not be a Christian. I still worship this God. Everything would be the same. And I would I, I think. Yeah. So. So um, now there's the issue of my bias. I, I, I have defended a non-Calvinist position for a long time. Libertarian freedom is important to my apologetic and, and I've defended it in several debates. I would like to think and I do think that if I genuinely became convinced of it, that I could that I could that I would pursue the truth. Or that you're um, open to being so convinced in the first place. 
Right, right. So, I mean, right. that's a long way of answering a simple question, but I wanted to really get the heart out on the table there. There, there have been theological issues that I've had a difficult time coming out with uh, because I knew that it would hurt certain people. Uh, that's just a human thing. Most people don't admit that's really going on, but it does go on. Um, and that's been real. So I, so I recognize that it would be, might be difficult to uh, preach it um, immediately, but I think I would be open to it. I just, I'm not convinced of it. And at this point, while I'm still open to being convinced, I've, I've, ex I've looked at the arguments. I, obviously, I could learn something new, but kind of like you, like I've seen this thing from a mountain of different angles, and I just don't see anything uh, coming around the corner that could convince me. But yeah, I'm open to it. Yeah. It, it's very similar, I think, uh, to the question somebody could ask of me of, are you open to eternal torment being true? Well, yeah, I'd like to think I am. In fact, I believed it for, you know, uh, nearly 10 years of the, from the beginning of my faith. Um, but I face all those same problems that you face, which is that I've been defending what I think the Bible teaches on about hell for 10 years now, roughly. Um, and, and I've published books on it and those things are going to affect me. I can't help but be affected in terms of bias by those things. And so, yes, it would be difficult, probably more difficult for me to accept eternal torment than it would be for somebody who's never had a view or, or at the very least has never like defended a view publicly. Um, but, uh, but yes, I'd like to also think I'm open in the same way. I think you say you'd like to think you're open. Um, Which answers Susan's question. Please. Yeah. So Susan asks, what if you were convinced that scripture does not teach Cal? Oh, he's, oh she's asking me that. that. Oh yeah. I mean, that. I would, um, I would change. I'd like to think I would change. Yeah. Um, I, I open this book, um, behind me right here. My, my two views debate book on pre uh, predestination. I open it with the story of my wife's and my two miscarriages. And I talk about how it's actually determinism that, um, made it possible for my wife and me to get through that second miscarriage to recover from it in a way that we couldn't have if we were not determinists. Um, and so there are, um, there are ways in which I think Calvinism and determinism make for a more beautiful Christianity and a more beautiful conception of God than indeterminism and, and, and non-Calvinist views. However, I'm sure there's at least some extent, however small, to which those are rationalizations to, to, to justify to myself why I should be comfortable with what I've become convinced the Bible teaches, which is all just to say that I think in principle, I could be convinced that the Bible teaches something other than it. And I would probably find some other way to uh, address my miscarriages, uh, my wife's and my miscarriages than the way I've come up with as a Calvinist. You know, ultimately um, you and I are um, Bible believing Christians and, so if you think the Bible teaches this and there's nothing that is contradictory about it in your mind, um, then, you know, that yeah, there are a lot of things that I believe that I that I wish weren't true that are true, whether that's in my everyday experience or uh, things that I see happen in the Bible. I, I don't like that cancer is a reality, but that doesn't make cancer not a reality uh, when I believe when you know, I mean, I I don't like that. Um, God, you know, certain things like that Moses didn't get it to go into the promised land. You know, I don't like that. But that's, it doesn't matter what I like. I'll go especially controversial and say I don't like that there are loved ones very close to me whom I won't identify publicly who uh, identify as something other than, than simply heterosexual. And I don't like 
that I have to th that that I feel bound to think that that is a sinful disposition, a warped, unnatural disposition, and that acting upon those would be sinful. I hate the fact that I think that I feel bound to think those things, but I do feel bound to think those things. And I so, said something very similar to that, Chris, on our episode on homosexuality last year, and I had some Christians call me out and say, "How dare you uh, say that you don't like something that God?" Uh, did or said or revealed I'm just I, it doesn't mean I think he's wrong God's right and I'm wrong that's the way yeah, it is that's but right I can't help my viscer my you know reaction to some of these things oh I mean I wish I could fly going back to your example of a bird gosh I wish God would have made it so we could flap our arms and fly but he chose not to <laughs> you know does that make me uh, blasphemous for for not liking the fact that God didn't make me capable of, of flight uh, anyway All everyone right. wants to see Chris date fly <laughs> yeah, well, that would look something like the big. The, if you've ever seen the Angry Birds movie, there's the the red bird, and there's the banana yellow bird, and then there's the big black fat one. And if I was able to fly, that's what I would look like—a big black <laughs> flying bird. Okay, I want to transition into because we've only got about ten minutes left. I might ask my wife to forgive me and go five minutes over what I said, but I want to talk about the incarnation because here's where I think probably the, one of the greatest strengths of the story author analogy uh, is to be found because, and this goes back to one of my problems with your virtual world analogy, which is that, you know, we've got text in scripture um, that say things, uh, at the very least, one text in Scripture, which says uh, th that the Son doesn't know the you know when when he will return. Um, only the Father knows. And this is an example among I think what would be a number of texts that we could that directly or indirectly seem to indicate that incarnate the Son is limited in ways that he's not uh, outside of his incarnation. Um, which is not even, and I'm not even talking about here, talking here about things like being immortal in his divine being, but mortal in his human being and things like that. I'm just talking about just knowledge and experience. In the case of the virtual world analogy, the designer could become incarnate, but the character, the, the character, the, the, um, uh, the 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 uh, the incarnation of the designer is only ever going to be thinking and feeling exactly what that designer thinks and feels at the time that he is playing out the the role of his incarnate character in the virtual world and so whatever there are no limitations to knowledge and feeling and things like that um a, no limitations faced by the incarnate version of the designer that the designer doesn't face but in the story author analogy it at least seems feasible to me that tolkien could write himself into middle earth as a um as a, or here here let me let me give the example the analogy i gave in my uh, episode last time imagine a, a story world that is in two dimensions um, all the characters are circles and triangles and squares. There aren't any cubes and, and cones and things like that. And the author of the story, who is in three dimensions, a human being like you or I, could incarnate himself as a two-dimensional character in the story and face all the, within the world, face all the limitations that any other two-dimensional character faces, uh, including in terms of knowledge. So the, the author 
his incarnate form within the story could choose to not to have the knowledge and experiences and feelings and everything that he has outside of the story world. Where it's, whereas it seems to me like that kind of thing isn't possible in the virtual world example. So let's spend these last few minutes talking about incarnation. Where do you think I might have gone right and where do you think I might have gone wrong? Well, I actually do think that's beautiful. I don't really have any major criticisms of that. Um, uh, except that the author, when he writes himself into the story isn't really experiencing the story the way that the character is. Um, he's, he's, it, it, all of the characters are fiction in the story. The, the, per, the character of himself that he's written in is somewhat fiction. He doesn't see the world as his creations see it, um, even if they are real, because we're doing an analogy for God who creates real beings. Uh, the author doesn't see things the way that they, he has no way to do that. Uh, he can imagine, but he doesn't see it with clarity the way Atreyu did in the Swamp of Sadness or whatever. Um, well, but Atreyu in the story isn't real either. So if, if we extend yeah. the analogy to make it so that Atreyu is real, albeit still a character in the story, yes. couldn't the author write himself into the story to have the same exact kinds of limitations and experiences Atreyu does? Well, that's the thing. He could say, he could write about himself, that he could write about his character in the story that that character is experiencing all the same things as Atreyu. But the but he's but he the creator isn't seeing what the creation in the story is seeing. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. So where I think this is where I really think that the um, virtual world of The Sims or something like it kind of shines. And in this way, um, obviously, virtual reality is is a thing. It's not. It, it's probably very possible right now to incorporate virtual reality into the sims if someone so wished and i wouldn't be surprised to see that coming in the future it blows my mind that we had virtual reality in some form in the late 90s if not before and yet major consoles and stuff don't have it with our with good games that anyone cares to play now it blows my mind maybe oh they are now could tell me I mean, I don't know about consoles, but I mean, the PlayStation, for example, has a, a VR headset, but there are plenty of PC. Yeah, but are they, virtual... but, but are they the games you really want to play? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, I, I'm a huge fan, for example, of the Half-Life series. And, and the whole reason I bought my virtual reality headset was so that I could play Half-Life Alex. Okay. All right. Well, then let's, <laughs> then that helps me. Good. Actually. Good. So there's nothing, pro there's nothing problematic uh, about a virtual reality set up with The Sims. So the creator could actually put himself into the game and literally see what his uh, creations quote unquote see, um, hear what they hear. Perhaps he couldn't feel what they feel, but as you know, there are mechanisms for that as well, though they might be imperfect. So um, that seems a richer, more uh, accessible version of, I mean, that's really great for the incarnation. Now everyone slips into heresy at some point when you start talking about the incarnation. So these are analogies. So heresy hunters, just chill out for a second. But, <laughs> But, but the fact is, this is a creator entering into the creation mm -hmm. and interacting with it. And as you suggested, even about a story that someone writes, perhaps having emotional reactions within the story, just as we would expect the non-player characters to be experiencing, um, to get a group of Sim disciples around himself and teach them truths about a higher world that they know nothing of. Now, to your point, uh, what about the lack of knowledge? Well in the uh, transcendent world beyond the game, of course, I have access to all the knowledge I would ever want about a great number of things. 
But within the game, the only way perhaps that I can access certain knowledge that I would be able to access without my VR on is to make a phone call within the game to my father who's in the transcendent world who can then tell me certain things that I need to do and that I need to say and reveal certain things to me about times and places. And so whatever you're going to say next, I feel like that was just said beautifully. <laughs> no, it, it, it's as beautiful as it can get and still um, suffer from the flaws I'm about to attempt okay. to identify. Uh, and, and let me just say, you're absolutely right about the heresy hunter thing. It's, it's because of the heresy hunters that I had to put these big red circles on a bunch of my slides with the things uh, in, in, other, in other videos saying, look, this is, I'm not saying this is the way it really is. I'm just <laughs> right. saying this is an analogy. Um, mm. But here's the thing. It seems to me that the, the very problem in, the, in, in what you've just described is that there is no differentiation between the experience of the designer while incarnate and the designer's experience, period, right? Um, whatever the incarnation of the designer is experiencing is exactly what the designer is experiencing at the moment that the uh, the the designer is um, playing it. So so let's let's assume for a moment dualism and uh, so, uh, you know substance dualism, um, which is something I would have liked to have gotten into, but we're not going to have time today, which is all fine for me because that was the one where I least developed my thoughts on this. Um, with substance dualism, the soul has historically been thought to be the seat of consciousness, right? But the being of God is also a seat of consciousness, right? If not three consciences. And so you've got a situation in the incarnation where in some way, shape or form, you've got at least two consciences. You've got the consciousness, the, the consciousness that is seated within the human soul of Jesus. And you've got the conscious that is seated, the consciousness that is seated within the being, the divine being outside of the created order. And so there isn't, it's not in fact that the consciousness, consciousness of the divine being is entering into time and experiencing um, what Jesus is experiencing incarnate, because if that were you wouldn't actually have a hypostatic union, you'd have a partial human being namely a body, you'd have something like, uh, what is it, a, um, a politarianism or something like that, where you've got um, just a human body, but no human soul. Um, and then you've got the divine mind moving the body around like a vehicle. And so, that sounds to me like the problem you face in your analogy. So I, I, I accept that because I, you know, I can't imagine a situation where we would actually have a Trinitarian nature instantiated in one person um, such that it would meet the qualifications here. Now, you're right that your analogy would give you two of the three at least, and you could probably find a way to add a third. Oh, no, 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 hold on. I'm not talking about the Trinity, because though. I, okay. When I, when I talk about two, I'm not talking about, like, the Father and the Son or the Son and the Holy Spirit. I'm talking about the incarnate Son and the, not, and, and the, and the Son that exists outside of the created order. Because I'm sure that as an Orthodox Trinitarian, you don't think... The dual nature. Right. You don't think that Jesus is God in the sense that outside of the created order, it is now a binity ever since the incarnation. No, 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 no. Of course not, no. Right. No, so, but, but I thought you were... What I was thinking you were saying is... The incarnation, you have, you would have a situation on your view where you do have 
this experiencer, let's say, within the story, and then the experiencer of the author, yes. and you have these two separate, but you don't want to get into a situation then where however this story came about, that we're kind of saying, let's not talk about that too much. Um, you do, you, you would, you would not have the preexistence of, of Christ on that, on that situation as a separate, but you're saying, I'm not talking about the Trinity. You're just saying, forget the Trinity for a minute. You have, you would have a separate <laughs> nature or you'd have something within the story that is not the same as the person who has written the story. Well, what are you saying? <laughs> well, so so go back to the so let's put the Trinity aside and let's just assume for the sake of the analogy a Unitarian creator. Um, the, you've still got a situation where, in order to be analogous to the incarnation, the seat of consciousness that is the author's mind must not be identical to the seat of consciousness that is in the incarnate Son. Because the seed of consciousness that is the incarnate son, at least according to traditional substance dualism, is the human soul. And so if, if Christ is to be fully human, then he's got to have a human body and whatever constitutes the seed of consciousness for a human being. But the seat of the divine consciousness is the divine being, the substance that God is, that simple substance that God is. Well, I mean, we could put aside the debate around divine simplicity. I don't no, understand no, no, it's on that. No, no, fine. I know what you mean. Right. Yeah. So, so what you have, it seems to me, in order to be able to affirm a, a, an orthodox Christology, a Chalcedonian Christology, is you've got to say that the divine consciousness and the incarnate son's consciousness aren't identical. And that would also be what enables the the incarnate consciousness to um to be limited in knowledge in ways that the divine one is not and 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 all that would be required is that is for them to be hypostatically united they'd have to be united in the one person who is both the outside of the created order consciousness and the inside of the created order consciousness that's something that the story author analogy seems to capture but i cannot imagine any way in which the virtual world one does because at any given moment the consciousness that is experiencing the game is the very consciousness that is the one that designed the game. Well, it's identical to that consciousness. It, so that's true. And that may be a weakness of the analogy. One thing I want to say about this that I think may balance that out a little bit in terms of the number of virtues for each is that I think the power of a good analogy is its ability to express a difficult truth <laughs> to a person in a way that's understandable. Hmm. And I think that that, that to, to some degree may have complex, uh, multiplied the, the complexity of it such that now I've got to understand it with the story so that I can understand it with God. And I think that when we're talking about the incarnation, I think one could say when someone says something like, but look, Chris, or look, Braxton, that doesn't even make any sense. God becoming a man. How can God step into creation? You could simply say, and I grant you this, well, it's like an author writing himself into a story. I think that works. And I think to push it too far might be problematic in, in some ways that perhaps I'm not even thinking of. On the other hand, I think for a young person, it would be, or an older person, it would be very um, understandable if you said something like, well, uh, 
do, do your kids play The Sims? Well, imagine that they are like a god to The Sims in some lowercase g that doesn't even bear the lowercase g. And they could put on a device that puts them into the game where they're seeing it all and feeling it all. That's not what the incarnation is like, but it does allow you to see it perhaps through a very dark, uh, not glass, but LCD screen. Understood. I, and I'll grant you that. But but I think that what that is um, identifying for us is that there's there are different purposes for different for analogies. If if, you, if what you want is an analogy that can help somebody grasp certain simple but nevertheless important elements of, of a concept in a way that otherwise a person might not be able to grasp, there might be some utility there. I mean, so for example, um, I personally am not at all comfortable with using the analogy of uh, ice, water, and steam, you know, as an example of the Trinity, but there is a certain degree of utility there. It's just that there's also risk there. Right. In the same way, yeah, the risk is that there might be a know-it-all standing by to call you a heretic. <laughs> exactly <laughs> right. Well, and 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 it may unintentionally lead to a an, an, an improper understanding yeah. of the Trinity. Oh, totally. And I agree. I I do think we should be cautious about analogies to the Trinity. Yeah. Well, and to the well, and we should be cautious matter. about analogies to the incarnation. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so what I guess what I'm saying is, yes, for the kind of situations that you were just describing, there's something you might want to help your five-year-old to understand or whatever. Um, uh, th that kind of analogy is going to be more useful than something like mine. But if you're trying to offer an analogy to a theologian who's trying to understand and grasp the doctrine, that's where I think something like my analogy is a little bit more apt. But let me... Is there anything more you want to see on the incarnation before? No, I, I think that's I think that's probably right. So for a point like that, we've got two different audiences in mind, and I think that's fair. And perhaps there are things to glean from both. Although I, I again I say as I did at the beginning, I think that the story author analogy has a beauty to it that The Sims doesn't have, and so uh, I think that's powerful. And I, you know, and I think there are many virtues. I will, I don't have a problem using that analogy going forward, as long as I know where, where, where you might not uh, partition it off and say it doesn't go further than that. I would, um, at, when it comes to things like determinism. But I think that, uh, you know, the analogies are helpful um, precisely because they help someone get a better understanding of, of what's going on, whether that's a theologian or a kid. But we're always going to find moments in any analogy where we have to say, look, when we're analogizing God, we're pointing to things that we have experience with, and nothing we have an experience with besides God is going to capture God. Yeah. No, I agree. Um, before we wrap up, I'm going to risk... Um, meriting the ire of my wife and go for just a couple more minutes because I lied earlier. I didn't lie. I, I, I misspoke. I, I said I would just leave the dualism versus physicalism thing aside, but I actually do want to just ask you a very uh, simple question, which is, do you think that the analogy in the way that I suggested it might could um, offer could start to offer an answer to the identity problem that you have to physicalism. Because here's the thing. Let, let me back up for a second and, and, and just explain to viewers what I understand your, one of at least, your main objections to uh, physicalism is. And maybe I should go back even further. I'll tell you what. Here's what I'll do. I will describe what I understand the differences between substance dualism and physicalism to be and, and then say that I am a physicalist. And then I'll let you explain the identity problem. And then I'll explain why I think that perhaps this analogy might 
address some of that challenge. Does that sound fine to you? And then we'll wrap yeah, up. Yeah. It's your show, man. Whatever you want to do. Okay. So, um, so for the viewers that aren't aware, um, tr Christians throughout Christian history have almost, I would say almost exclusively with, with very few dissidents, um, have, have believed in what's called anthropological substance dualism, that which is the view that human beings have two substances to use the philosophical jargon. Substance in phil philosophical uh, jargon isn't like wood versus uh, plaster or something like that. It's it's like a concrete uh, ty uh, entity of, of a particular type. And in the case of human beings, substance dualism entails uh, uh, that human beings have both a material body and all of the parts that make it up, the, the neurons in the brain and the hands and the arms and everything and then also an immaterial soul or spirit most dualists i think are dichotomists they think that that immaterial soul is also what the bible calls a spirit but of course there are trichotomists as well who would say that the soul and spirit are distinguishable from one another but it would still a form of dualism because they're both this immaterial part of man whereas the material part is the body now that substance dualism, and, and just to flesh it out just a little bit more, that immaterial soul has classically been understood to be simple in the way that the divine being is supposedly simple. Namely, there's no parts. It's pure act. It's pure consciousness. The, what, what the soul is, is consciousness, something along those lines. And, um, and it is uh, yeah, so, so and, and, and it is capable, of, according to most dualists, of quote unquote surviving death in the sense that it continues to experience and be conscious even beyond the death of the body and then it's reunited with the body when it is raised in resurrection. A physicalist like me, a Christian physicalist, which is almost synonymous with non-reductive physicalists, I'm not aware of any reductive physicalists who are Christians, but we physicalists believe that no, there aren't these two substances that make up a human being, but rather um, there's one substance and that substance is physical. It's the body, it's everything, all parts of the body, including the brain and all the neurons that make it up. And, the, and, and what we call the mind, um, which is all of the various things that philosophers call qualia, right? Experience and thought and feeling and all these things. All of those things are part, are, comprise a mind that is something like a property of, an emergent property of the firing neurons in the brain. And as such, when the brain dies in death and ceases to function and those neurons cease to fire, a person is no longer conscious of anything because there is no mind that emerges from the brain. So I'm a physicalist, although I hold to that fairly tentatively compared to most other doctrines I hold to. Um, it is what I think I see the Bible teaching, but very weakly compared to what I think it teaches on other topics. Now, you have a number of problems. I'm not at all going to suggest that they're reducible to just one with uh, the kind of physicalism that I and a few other Christians embrace. But the one I want to talk about here, because I think there may be application from of this story analogy, is the identity problem to substance or to physicalism. So maybe you can unpack that objection, that challenge, and then I'll um, explain why I think the analogy might go a certain degree to, to answer it. So I did hear what you had to say on the last video, and I liked it, um, but I do still have problems with it. Um, and and uh, so the problem of the continuity of identity is is basically like this. So 
if you're just a physical body and there is no other substance, the immaterial soul, you run into a problem with what's known as the, the ship of Theseus problem, where basically Theseus comes back from a major, uh, uh, you know, he's, he's a hero, he's done all this amazing stuff. It's actually um, interesting, if you read Plutarch, you get the thing that served as the basis for the Hunger Games. But anyway, or at least kind of. Um, but Theseus comes back and they decide they're going to um, keep his ship in harbor as a memorial to his conquest or whatever, or his adventures. And so... Um, uh, but, of course, it begins to rot over time, so they replace pieces of the ship. And given enough time, every single bit of the ship is replaced. And then so you have the question, is that still Theseus' ship, right? Just like um, the proverbial uh, axe that, that was used to chop down the cherry tree. Well, this is the axe that uh, Washington used to chop down the cherry tree. Now, the head's been changed five times, and the handle's been changed 16 times, but that's the axe that was used, right? Well... The problem is for people like me, I don't see how that's Theseus's ship and I don't see how that's um, Washington's axe. So what um, if you're just a physical body and you outlined this in the last show? Well, every however many years, uh, seven to 10 years, the cells in your body cycle out. Um, even if some of your neurons don't cycle out, you actually talked about how you, you change uh, psychological perspectives and things like that, such that you are not the same physical entity than you, that you were 10 years ago. You're just not. And so then what is it to say you? What is the continuity of identity that is you? And Go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, I, I was just going to say, and usually, or, or where I think this challenge really gains some some purchase, some teeth, where it develops some teeth, is when it comes to the resurrection. So maybe unpack yeah. that for us as well. Yeah. So, so uh, real quick, and I am trying to be quick, but some people have tried to solve the problem of continuity of identity with certain ways, like your memories or things like that. But those all have problems, I think. Um, so, but for Christians like us talking about the continuity of identity, I see the physicalist as running into a real problem because when you die and your body decays and, and it turns to ash, um, to dust it goes back and all those kind of things, and God resurrects you, um, when he resurrects you, he is recreating your body. The resurrection is a recreation of a physical body that is identical to the one you had at some point during your life. Um, or at least is the same DNA, I don't know, something like that, right? And so, so, so then we call that you, and all the memories are there, and everything is there. But if there was no continuation of your identity throughout that period of time, from death and decay to the recreation that we're calling a resurrection, then I fail to see, and I'll even go so far as to say, my strong opinion now is that it is impossible, that that is still you, um, that that is meaningfully not a copy of you. Because for that matter, if God wanted to do that right now, he could do the same thing. He could, he could re reproduce every bit of your physical body with all the memories and all the scars and everything right now, and there'd be two of you. Right. And then we'd say, well, which one is you? Well, I'm me. And the other one would say, well, I'm him too. So, so you run into this real problem. And so uh, real quick, Joel B. Green, who I think is your former president at, at Fuller, right? Joel B. I don't know Green. if he was president, but he, he is okay. or at least was a professor there. Yeah. OK. And, and he wrote a book on this and it was recommended to me that it would address the problems that I had. And it was a great book, really well written. But he said somewhere toward the beginning of that book that he was going to deal with the problem of the continuity of identity. And, and he, he really did. <laughs> he did toward the end of the book, like when there was a few pages left, if I remember correctly. And basically he said something that I think is akin to what you said, although not 
using the story analogy. So if you want to talk about the story analogy, I can, um, well, well let me t tell you what he, he basically, if I remember correctly, said something like, whatever it is that is you, God will hold on to. And then when he recreates you, that'll be a part of it. But for my money, he's just describing the soul. That's, that, that is to say, the thing that's you that really is your identity, he's going to hold on to and put it back well, that's just the soul. That's that's all I can make out of that. Yeah, no, and and, and I remember I actually interviewed him on my other uh, on the apologetics back when it was just an audio podcast, and I remember asking him this question, and I remember I upset him somehow because when he tried to explain his answer to the challenge, I said, okay, so it's kind of like what happens when Marty McFly goes eighty-eight miles or you know whatever per hour in the in the um, DeLorean and then appears suddenly in the future, right? Um, there's a great period of time that transpires, but, but but Marty McFly himself instantaneously vanishes from one point in the timeline and reappears in the other. Um, and, and if it were time travel like that, you could still say it's the same person, right? I'm sure you'd have no problem with saying that the Marty McFly who arrives in the future is the Marty McFly who left the past. But but I remember when yeah. I asked it, huh? I think, I think that would avoid the problem. Yes, and, and that's not my answer, my solution okay. to the problem, and and, and I, although I, maybe it could be developed into one, but I just remember when I when I proposed that that as a sort of summary for what he had just explained, he seemed genuinely upset. You'll have to go back and listen and tell me what you think, but. I, I frankly I don't know how I've never been able to quite understand how Joel Green um, or for that matter Nancy P, uh, uh, Murphy or, or other physicalists attempt to resolve it and and as Glenn Peoples has explained in his podcast series uh, defending physicalism there are physicalists who have really weird bizarre yes like I like, read them all I read the journal articles they're really bizarre yeah so like I'm sure there's one where the, the god like holds on to like one par particle of the body or something yeah. in and then uses that particle to rebuild the rest of the body at resurrection or something it just sounds that really does sound ad hoc to me or there's like a change of particles almost like a teleporter in star trek it's it, I, yeah it's yeah go ahead. yeah exactly I, okay that stuff made me more convinced of substance dualism because i thought if this is what you have to do to try to hold on to it I don't want to sound too snarky. I, I just, it, it just, I And plus, another problem for me, Chris, since we're just letting our hair down here, so sure. to speak. <laughs> well, at least one of us has some hair to let down. <laughs> yeah. Is, is, is that ph Christian physicalists already believe in other substances, like, 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 uh, even if it's not the same, spiritual substances that perhaps angels have or that God has yes. and things like we that. We are not metaphysical physicalists, we are yeah, anthropological so I, so physicalists. I, so, I, I mean, I get if you don't think the Bible teaches it, but from our previous conversations, um, I, I think that I think that you're I don't want to speak for you, but I yeah, go ahead. I think you're exactly right. I think what you were probably about to say is that my only real conviction or the only the only real reason why I seem to embrace physicalism is because I think that's what I see the scripture teaching. And I think that's largely true. I don't have any philosophical commitments that make me think physicalism is the better uh, option with the possible exception of a very. Um, underdeveloped thought I have with regards to, ironically, moral accountability, because, uh, and I don't want to go back and forth on this because I've hardly given it enough thought to be able to articulate sure. it in any fashion. I will sit here silently. Great. That's what I want you to do. But, but at the very least, so uh, you remember, you know, that famous story in psychology of the, um, the, the guy who had a train spike shot through his head, um, 
there, it's it's a fame it's famous in psychology mm -hmm. and and uh, what it proves um, is it, what happened was this 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 guy who worked on train tracks he had a device that shoots uh, railroad spikes into the into the um, tiers or whatever they're called the the things that the rail rails are on and the the thing backfired or something and it shot a railroad spike not into the ground but up through his head <laughs> and he survived it and didn't even really have any lasting um physical problems or anything but the strange thing is his whole personality had changed he was radically different in his personality his, his thoughts his feelings and things like that yeah. and and that's just one of the oldest of numerous um experiments and observations phineas gage thank you susan you Susan is like on every single YouTube channel I seem to go to, and she's always on top of this kind of stuff. Thank you for I that, Susan. Her. I love she's her. She's awesome. She, yeah, she's the bouncer for all the apologetics channels. She's the bouncer for Rethinking <laughs> Hell Live as well. And by the way, to answer a question uh, Brandon asked about Rethinking Hell Live episodes on the audio podcast, we, we have a separate audio podcast feed at Rethinking Hell for the Rethinking Hell Live episodes. So, um, Brandon, if you're not familiar with that go onto facebook and go to the facebook the rethinking hell facebook discussion group and ask about it and um our our tech guy can give you the link to that podcast anyway um where was i going with this um oh yeah yeah so what that seems to prove and, and many experiments since have seemed to prove is that um the, the uh, changes to the brain directly affect changes to the mind now that does not mean that the mind is identical to the brain. I don't go that far. I think that would be a logical leap that's unjustified. But what it does seem to prove is that there is a link between the two and changes to the brain can um, uh, uh, immutably affect changes to the mind. So, so let's say that you've got a soul that is inhabiting or, or whatever language we might want to use to, to describe its union with the body. All right. And the soul is pure consciousness. It's the seat of consciousness. It's, it's the thoughts, the feelings, everything that, that the person is uh, in terms of thought and experience and identity and quality and all that stuff. You've got that soul and it is the seat of consciousness, the source from which all of the choices that the embodied soul um, carries out. If that's the case and you have, let's say you've got a Christian, let's say, um, and, and here I'm, I want to set aside the debate over once saved, always saved and stuff like that. Let's say for the sake of our, just put all that aside and just say that you've got a Christian who's, um, who has a railroad spike shot through his brain. And one of the effects of that physical damage to the brain is that that person no longer identifies as a Christian. Now you could not, it seems to me, easily chalk that up to a libertarian free choice made by the soul or even a compatibilistically free choice of the soul. Because if you're gonna hold that soul responsible for the, the lost faith um, or, or sins that are committed by the, the person that are a direct result of the damage that's done to that brain, then there seems to be something profoundly unjust about holding that soul responsible when the soul is, is, is so limited by the damage that's been done to the brain. It's really not the soul, it's not really the fault of the person making the choices. It's simply a chain of dominoes affected by the damage done to the brain. That's why, that's literally the only philosophical concern I have with substance dualism is that I can't explain that. Whereas if human beings, if our identity, if our mind subsists in our body, right, rather than in the soul, 
then for damage to be done by the to the brain such that the mind changes that is the person's mind changing although granted it is um changed by external stimulus namely the damage done to the brain but you but at least you don't have an innocent soul whose choices are interfered with by the damaged hardware of the brain um I want to give you, I, I, I said, you said you'd be silent, but I do at least want you to give me some feedback on um, if you have any thoughts at all on what I just articulated. <clears throat> if you well, think that, I, yeah. So I, I do have thoughts and, and for just for brevity's sake, I'll just say that I dealt with this very issue. I can't remember if it was, I think in the case I'm thinking of is the one that Sam Harris brings up in his book. Um, and I know we're talking about Christian stuff here and not um, atheist stuff, but he brings up the issue of someone who has a tumor and they, I uh, can't remember if it was they started molesting children or, or just became violent or whatever, but when the tumor was removed, it, that, that behavior was gone. And so it was a similar sort of a situation, but we actually got to see the other side of it too when it was removed and what that did. And um, I dealt with all that in an episode uh, from about two years ago, now almost two years, uh, where I responded to Matt Dillahunty, Rationality Rules, and uh, Cosmic Skeptic when they were all together. It's a really terrible thumbnail. You can find it really easily. I'm sitting there drinking a cup of coffee, and the three guys are on the other side. This is when I was trying to figure out how to do thumbnails. But anyway, <clears throat> just go there to check that out. But I would have... Uh, so, so it would be a bigger discussion, but there's two things that I'll just throw out there just real quick. One is... Um, I don't think of the, 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 the mind or the consciousness, let's say, of the soul as being affected by the brain. I think of the brain more as a, a hardware apparatus like, and obviously there's an interconnection and interplay. Everybody believes that to some degree, but um, uh, that believes in the soul. But um, <laughs> so, you, so you have, um, it's, it's more like a radio, an AM, FM radio that gets damaged. And so the signal coming in from the station um, is distorted as it's coming out or comes out completely wrong or in different notes or whatever. That's an imperfect analogy. And I think that the kickback would be, yeah, but are you saying that there's a conscious soul somewhere that is still wanting to make the right decision, but is helpless as the brain makes the wrong decision or something like that? That would be a bigger discussion, but that's the only corrective is that I would say, I don't think that the brain affects the soul so much as the the display of the soul through broken hardware is is simply not coming through the right way. The second thing, before you comment on that, and I'll let you have the last word because that's a whole big thing. Um, the second thing is, and you're not going to like this, so I, I haven't. I hope you don't see this as me throwing a punch. This is just really what I think: is if a person sees that as um, not something that like a, and I agree. Um, that a person with a spike through their brain who has a different personality than they had before or a tumor is not morally responsible in the same way that they were before that happened, um, then I would say that's because the brain, uh, the tumor and the spike is somehow deterministically affecting that person's um, activities and behavior. And I would just say step back three layers and you've got the story creator analogy where everything the person does, spike or no spike, is being determined by the creator. I'll give you, it's not through the causal determinism in the sense that you want to be clear about that difference, but it's still there, and so I still think we run into the same problems. And so I say, if a person has a problem with judging the person morally with the spike in their head, they should have a similar reaction to determinism qua determinism. Sure, and, and as you will no doubt 
fail to to find surprising. <laughs> I don't agree, um, but that's fine. I did so, fail to find that's fine. fail to find. Yeah. Anyway, I don't even know why I worded it that way. Um, so, but now going back to the issue of identity. Um, here's so, so all, all of that was just to say that is the only philosophical concern I have, and I actually agree with you, and was try and I tried to be careful, although I'm sure I didn't entirely succeed, to say that it's not that the changes to the brain affect the soul; it's that the changes to the brain limit the soul, uh, the soul's ability to express itself. And that's exactly the concern I'm trying to latch onto here: is how is it just that the soul is unable, by virtue of being limited by the brain that it is operating through, to do what it would ordinarily want to do? But anyway, that's that's other well, than I, that. I don't know that we know how God would judge a person with a spike in their head that way. Agreed. But we also don't know how that God would judge uh, somebody whose actions he determined, as provided he didn't determine them caus causally. That aside, going back <laughs> to the issue of identity, the reason, the whole reason I brought this up is because. I actually don't share the intuition of a lot of people that that ship Theseus fails to be the same ship it was when Theseus first built it. I, I, it seems to me that it is the same ship for one reason and one reason alone. The, the, the identity of the ship subsists in the, uh, the, the mind of its designer. If, if, if uh, the creator of a ship... Um, let's say, or, or let's say, let's say I build a house one day. My wife and I finally get to build, you know, to own a house, not a cheap little mobile home that like we did for a few years, but we, we suddenly fall into a lot of money and we build a house and that is the house that we designed, we built, and we're super happy about it and we love it. And then over the course of 10 years, let's say that while we're living there, over the course of those 10 years, every single part of that house ends up being replaced over the course of home repair and stuff like that. I would still call that my house, not just because I'm still living in a building where the previous building stood, but because the identity of the house, in my mind, doesn't subsist in its parts. <clears throat> it subsists in the mind of me and my wife who designed and built the house and have been living there ever since. So what I suggested in the video, as you'll recall, is that the problem of identity might be solved if we think that identity, personal identity of a human being subsists not in any part of the human, but in the mind of its creator. Um, if that's the case, then there's no, it seems to me as if the, the author of the story is perfectly capable of making sure that the character that gets raised later in the story is the same character who had died previously, even if there's nothing in the timeline that, that, that connects the character when he dies uh, to the character when he rises. Um, and I would actually argue that this might solve the problem even better than substance dualism, because in substance dualism, I mean, many of our confessions and creeds uh, historically have said that the body with which we Christians rise is the self-same body. That word self-same is the very word used in those confessions and creeds. The self-same body with which we had died. But how can that be true when the body that died, even if you've got a soul that still exists between death and resurrection, the body has died and is rotted away. And so even if God recreates that body, your intuition, it seems to me, would, would require that we say that's not actually the same body. It's well, a now hold body. on. Now hold on a second. Sure. I'm I don't I'm not basing this on intuition. I'm I'm saying Okay, your logic. Yeah. All right. So if we follow your logic to its lot what I think 
and and I'm, and I'm positing is its logical conclusion is that you would have to say the resurrection body of a Christian isn't actually the body in which they died. It's not their body. It's or it's it, no. They, I don't they, think I don't think that's their, right. Huh? I I disagree. Okay, tell me why. I try never to say I disagree because it sounds discourteous. It doesn't. But I, I love do. it. I love it. Um, well, because I think there's other ways of conceptualizing that. We understand that the crafters of the creed didn't understand anything about genetics and DNA and all that sort of thing. I think it's perfectly feasible, just like we look at certain things in Scripture that we understand the people at the time didn't understand um, the scientific realities that surround what they're talking about. It doesn't mean that what they're saying didn't happen exactly that way, but it's just not the detail that we would like. I think in the same way one could say... No, that is the body. I mean, the body that I have right now isn't the self-same body in a certain sense that it was 10 years ago. So what's the same? Well, one thing that's the same is the DNA. I don't see a problem with God giving me this, putting my soul in a body with similar DNA. Yeah, but your DNA is only the blueprint for your body. It's not actually your yeah. body, right? Yeah, sure. So, and, and we can put the creeds and confessions aside and just use the language of 1 Corinthians 15, right? Paul says the body that dies is the body that rises. Which one? Now, the one from this decade one? or last decade or the one before that? I'm not talking about the bodies changing over time. I'm talking about death and resurrection. Yeah, I know, but I'm saying, like, you, you agree that you don't have the same physical body, more or less. <laughs> yes, I, yeah, I hear what you're saying, exactly. You're, you're just helping my case. Because okay. for, for, in some way, shape, or form... Paul must be legitimately able to, to say that the body that dies is the body that rises, even if it's not made up of all the same parts. Yeah, right? yeah, I agree with that. So what I want to know is, in what way can you uh, justify that language in a way that doesn't equally apply to the body on physicalism? It, it can. The problem is not that it's the same physical body in some sense, the problem is that you don't have the same conscious experiencer. Okay, because but, of the continuity of identity problem. But isn't when you say the same conscious ex experiencer, it, it still sounds to me like you're talking about identity. Yes. Okay. So when Paul says the body that dies is the body that rises, isn't he using the language of identity? No, I don't no, think so. No, is isn't uh, the language of identity? Do I say that again? I'm sorry. The word is the body that dies is the body that rises. The body the that body is sown is, is the body that rises. I, yeah. what, what I take him to be saying is this is this is the same person that died. But he's and, talking. He's talking. He's not talking about the person. He's talking about the body. Well, you just asked me and seemed to insist that it had to do with identity, right? Yeah, identity obviously can be applied to more than just persons, right? If if I right. So so either way you want to go. I think that substance dualism is covered. So if it's the same physical body by which we mean God recreated something and called it self-same, even if it's not the same physical material, right? Isn't that what you're saying? Yes, I'm saying that however you might try to explain, however you might try to justify calling the resurrection body the same body that as the one that died, mm -hmm. um, would not, would automatically open up the... the, the, the um, the possibility that there's a similar way of accounting for how the whole person, the identity of the person, um, can persist through past death yeah. and into resurrection without yes. requiring substance dualism. Okay, so so this is what I'm saying. So I'm not arguing anything about the body. I, I'm arguing about 
the identity. I see a problem with the continuity of identity. So what you're saying, you agree with me, I think, that the body that, that is raised, so to speak, is not the same physical matter that died, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, I, I agree with you on that. Right. Um, but you still think so, that there's a legitimate sense in which you can call that the body that died. Sure. Okay. So you're saying that same thing should apply to the soul or no, to no, the no. identity. No, no, no. It's the other way around. I'm saying that if you can be a substance dualist and maintain that there's some sense in which the resurrection body is in fact the body that died, even though it's all new matter, mm-hmm. that is a problem of identity. Just if, if you just set the soul aside, see, I, here, maybe here's the problem. Maybe we're, we're, we're unintentionally equivocating on the word identity. I'm not talking, yeah. when I use the word identity, I'm using it in the generic sense that, look, if I hold up this pen and then take it out of the frame and then bring it back into frame, the, the, it's the same pen. Right. I haven't swapped it out with another pen. As and far as I can tell. As far as you can tell. Right. So I'm talking about identity in this sense, the sense that this pen is the same pen that I bring back into frame after taking it out of frame. And I'm I'm saying that that problem exists for the body, even in substance dualism, that if you want to say that the body that rises is the body that died, despite being made up of all new material, then then there must be some sense in which the identity of that body subsists in um does not subsist in something that continues between death and resurrection why not that's the solution in in my mind of how that's the self-same no because look if i if i get out of one car and then get into another that's not the same car right yeah but you and i are both agreeing that'd be like you and i both agreeing that we've got a different car made of similar materials but not the exact same materials you're agreeing with me that the raised body is not made of the same physical material as the original body right right so so what i'm saying is in my analogy of a car the driver Mm -hmm. is analogous to the soul and the car is analogous to the body yes so if so what you said is substance dualism is what enables you to say that the body that rises is the body that dies, then Mm -hmm. all you're talking about is something analogous to me getting out of a car and getting into another one and saying that I'm now in the same car that I was just in. Okay, well, first of all, again, I understand what you mean by the players in the analogy, but what I'm saying is you already agree with me that the new body is a different car in a sense because it's the diff... it's, it's, it's... it's different material. It's not the same physical matter, right? That's just it, though. I'm not agreeing with you that that's not the same car, or not the same resurrection body. Even though it's made up of all the same, all different parts. That's what um, I'm saying. Right, but but then that but substance dualism doesn't solve the problem of identity. Here's for how the resurrection it solves body. It. Here's how it solves it. Okay. If if you're in this car, right, one mm-hmm. car, and that car gets totaled Mm -hmm. but but you get out of the car Mm -hmm. and go somewhere else Mm -hmm. and then later someone recreates that car out of different material but in every way it's the same car right but it's different material and you get back in that car Mm -hmm. the thing that's the same is what we could say about the car before it got totaled is that's chris's car what we can say about the new car is that's chris's car but that's not the identity of the car that's the relationship between me and the car Right? You already agree with me that the body is made out of different material, though. Well, let's get to the body in a second. In, in the car, okay. this is awesome. Listeners are probably loving that we're finally getting into a little bit of an argument. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, go with the, what you just said with the car analogy. You could obviously say, 
that the the car into which I now get that is identical in every way except it's made up of d different materials, different matter than my previously my previous car that is now totaled and gone, we could definitely say that's my car, but we couldn't say it's the car I was in last time, right? We well now that's true. Okay. But what we okay? Go ahead. So could you say w would you be comfortable saying the car I'm entering a few years later? Is the car I crashed? Say that again. Let's say that I crashed the car in 2012 and I enter in the replacement car in 2014. Would you feel comfortable saying the car I'm getting into in 2014 is the car I crashed in 2012? In a manner of speaking. <laughs> See, this is just it. it yeah. From you're, a you're... certain point of view. Huh? From a certain point of view. Right, exactly. That's well, Obi-Wan reference. <laughs> yes, well, uh, all Star Wars nerds, I, it seems to me, hate that part of uh, the, the Star Wars story because yeah. obviously it's not, um, his father isn't really dead, but anyway. Um, but no, this, this is my point, is that it seems to me as if there's a profound and important sense in which the body that rises is the body that died, even in such what a What is that 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 uh, well, I think it's in the sense that identity, again, in the generic sense, any any object being the same object that we talked about a moment before, identity I think subsists in uh, outside of the thing itself. So in the case of ship Theseus, I think the identity of the ship isn't wrapped up in the ship; it's wrapped up in the designer of the ship. In the case of um, in in your analogy or in substance dualism, one could argue, or or, or let's take the the analogy of the car. You might say the sense in which the car I get into in 2014 is the same car I got into in 2012 is in the sense that I'm the one that drove it in 2012, crashed yes. it. Right. But You're that the just... conscious experiencer, I, uh, uh, that is to say the soul. But but you're still saying that the identity of the thing, in this case the car, which which I'm offering as an analogy to the body, the identity of the thing does not subsist in itself. It subsists in something else. Namely, in your case, the soul. But Just I as your physical body is still your physical body, the self-same physical body, even though it's experienced almost cellular change all the way across. Exactly my point. And if we, if we can agree... It's not your point. But it is. If we can agree... Your point that is that God does that, and like that God... Your point... Okay, go ahead. My, my point isn't about who's doing what. My point is that in which identity subsists or is grounded is the one it, where the identity is in it's the it's that in which the identity is grounded or or, yeah. or 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 subsists so in the case of the to use your substance dualism approach the identity of the, the that which continues the identity of your body that identity uh, the identity that is shared by both the body in which you die and the body with which you rise the identity of that body subsists in the soul that inhabited, to use a poor term, the body in which you died and the body with which you rise. So the identity of the th of one thing subsists in or is grounded in something else. Let me ask you this. Well, hold on. Let me just finish my thought. Okay. And so what I'm proposing is that in physicalism, to the, the identity of the, per, the physical being that dies is the same identity as with as the one who rises, despite there being no continuity there, because the identity it isn't grounded in itself. It's grounded in the author. That was the point I was getting at. 
Right. So, and I, so with the story analogy, just to get that out of the way real quick, my criticism of that is, uh, no, I didn't mean that like it's not valuable. I know, it's I'm right. just saying to, to get that one out of the way because it's not really what I want to talk about as much. But um, if if someone wrote that story, I mean, you're a geek. You talk about movies and theories and all that sort of thing. Film theory is a thing on YouTube for a reason. So if if you wrote a story about a character and had him die and and whatever, and then you had him us talking about him later or something and putting him there without any explanation, we would still, as film theory geeks, be uh, say, okay, I'm accepting that this character here at the end who has the same name, who's being described as the same as the protagonist, is the same character because that's what I'm being told by the author, and this is the world that this author is creating. However, I still want some explanation of how that happened because we may have a story with a plot hole in it. And so I would want to know how that happened. Before, I mean, I would, I would want to know the explanation just as I'm asking you now. So here's my question for you. Okay. So take take Washington, take the proverbial uh, axe that chopped down the cherry tree. I get what you're saying about the house, but I think this is a way to test it more at the fringes. If I said to you, this is the axe that, that Washington, we know the story, whether it happened or not, right? I'm saying this is the axe that George Washington used to, to, to chop down the cherry tree. Um, and the handle's been changed and the head has been changed. Only two parts to this thing. And I say to you, I say, this is still the axe that was used. Am I right or am I just wrong? Uh, that would depend on whether or not you, um, whether or not you were aware that you had access, you know, cognitive access to the 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 state of that axe throughout its entire Let's existence, right? So, so in the case of an author, the author of the character is aware of the identity of the character even after it's gone and then he brings it back into the story well but, you know, but hold on stick with the axe sure. for a minute yeah is that the same axe if let's say okay tells you that's the same axe but also tells you that the head and the handle have been changed is this author playing fast and loose or is that the same axe right right no i, I hear what you're saying so let's say hypothetically speaking that braxton hunter was there when the axe was used by allegedly by george washington to cut down the tree and braxton hunter was ever since then um privy to the state of the axe at any given moment and so Braxton Hunter knows that the head of the axe was replaced n number of times, that the handle of the axe was replaced uh, o number of times. I should have used x and y. I don't know why I used n and o. Um, and, and, and so, yes, I would have no problem, provided I knew that that was the case, I would have no problem saying that's, accepting that that's the axe because you were there throughout its, uh, to, you were there to see its parts replaced. So its identity isn't grounded in itself. It's identified in the one or more persons who are aware, are aware of it. See, that I mean, to me, that is, and I get this is just the point where we've reached the, we understand each other, we just disagree is where it's at. Yes, because exactly. Because I'm looking at that axe and I'm saying, that is not the same axe. Exactly. I, and that's the point where, uh, I think it was Norman Geisler who said we had a nice chat about Norman Geisler yesterday. But, yeah, we did. Uh, the, the, where, I think that's the point where Norman Geisler said, um, in terms of making my case, I don't have to respond to what you just said. I just want to make sure everyone understands what you just said, because I think that that point that you're making right now, um, there are a number of people that are going to agree with you. There's a number of people that are going to agree with me. And I think that that understanding that point 
will parse those people out pretty well one way or the other. Yep. I, I agree with you. I, I just wonder if, um, I, I guess I don't understand what purchase, what power the argument has from identity against physicalism if a substantial portion of people who just heard our discussion would agree with me that the axe is in fact the same axe and a number of others would not. Because but, I think that there are rational thinking people um, who disagree. I'm, you know, I'm just reading. That's my point. All, yeah. Yeah. No, I'm not saying you're an idiot because you don't see it my way. I got you. Okay. <laughs> I'm just, I think you're one of the smartest people I know. Uh, I, I'm just saying, Tim, this is one of those moments where it's like, the blue dress and the gold dress where I'm looking at it and I'm like, how do you not see what I see right yeah. now? And you're looking back at me saying, how do you not see what I see right now? Well, well, you know what it tells me, uh, or at least what I think it tells me is that the question of identity is more complex than anybody tends to want to think about it. Um, but you might disagree and that's okay. I um, agree that this is a, t yeah, because like I said before, people have tried to grapple with how identity works. And some skeptics would just say that I'm taking the easy way out by positing a soul. And some physicalists might think I'm taking an easy way out, Christian physicalists. So, um, yeah, but I, this is, I'm glad we got to this just because I'm really passionate about this topic. Hmm. And uh, we finally got to a point where we got to uh, fight a little bit. Yeah, in, yeah. A, in a fun and loving way. Yeah. Yeah. For, for like 50 minutes. And, and now I'll get to go fight with my wife because I went 50 minutes over I, my agreed upon time. I'm sorry. Um, I'm really no, it's not your fault. It's mine. Um, but I, I'm glad. I, th I think it's probably the most interesting 50 minutes of our show. It's the author. What's that? It's the author's fault. That's the author's fault. That's exactly right. One last question, though, about this identity issue. Back to the question of ship Theseus. Um, my understanding is that that's not at all like a settled dispute. It's not at all the case that the overwhelming majority of philosophers would say that that isn't the same ship or, or that it is. Y yes, you're right. You, you have a, a host of uh, philosophers and scholars that side with you on this issue. I just think they're, they're probably all just all atheists, unfortunately. <laughs> Well, yeah. there aren't a whole lot of, at least popularly, there aren't a lot of Christian physicalists. No, there's definitely not. Um, yeah, that's interesting. Well, like I said, I hold on to physicalism very loosely anyway, certainly not with any um, certainty. Uh, you know, th there were some other questions in the chat. Uh, do I think we'll have the same kind of flesh? I do think it'll be flesh, but it'll be glorified. It'll be immortal. Um, I think that was the only other question I saw. So I'm not going to go through the chat. Um, but... I do want to give you a chance, Braxton, to offer some uh, parting farewells, some thoughts or whatever to the viewers. Um, you know, I have, uh, the way I've typically ended my shows, either on The Apologetics or on Rethinking Hell, um, is by giving my guests an opportunity to share a parting message. Um, because after almost three hours of talking, a lot of what you and I have said is going to be forgotten by the people that are watching. But, um, uh, oh, by the way, Kyperian Berean, who is a Calvinist, by the way, says in the chat that um, he really appreciates your ministry, Braxton, on oh, apologetics, you. despite your theological differences. And I wholeheartedly I agree. Um, but uh, yeah, so I, if, if our viewers forget almost everything that we've been blathering on for almost three hours, um, uh, if they forget almost all of that, what would you like them to take away most from our conversation and be thinking about after the recording's over? 
Well, one thing is that in the worldview discussions today and even theological discussions that happen online, it's often not charitable and it's often not cool and it's often not friendly. And Chris Date and I really like each other. And um, we, um, we, we talk a lot and there's been some emotional gooey moments and there's been some fun fights and arguments. But uh, I think this is how it should be done. I, I, I think that Christianity has a rich history of debate, and I think that we do a disservice to sweep it under the rug and pretend that it isn't there, like the Southern Baptist Convention did for a long time with the Calvinism uh, versus non-Calvinist d- issue. And then we do a disservice when we uh, consign each other to the flames over secondary matters that truly are secondary matters, when we should just be able to have a healthy debate, even a heated debate, and it be okay. And um, that goes along perfectly well with what Chris and I were talking about, about God's, uh, the good that we find in the search for discovery and, and the quest for knowledge. And also, um, I've, I've uh, criticized uh, Chris's view on uh, the scholar or the author and story thing throughout this, but I think it's really good. Um, part of the point of this, I think, was to test it by clashing it together with something else. And so hopefully that's helped the analogy and um at least in your mind's understanding better where chris is coming from and i see value in it and i'll use the story analogy with the proper limitations as i said before and lastly the most important thing is to keep your eyes on jesus i want to say this very seriously i know that we've been having a more of a a higher level discussion than we might have on the back row of a church pew but the, the, the the fact is I've only recently really doubled my efforts with my personal daily devotional and trying to get closer to Jesus and praying for the decisions um, that I make and, and, and what I do in a greater way. And I'm convicted that I haven't done it to the degree that I, that I wanted to before. And, you know, when I'm spending my time alone with the Lord, I'm not focusing as much on these um, detailed issues as I am just on a relationship walking with Jesus. And so at minimum, being a, a disciple of Jesus means to follow Jesus. And so the most important thing that I could ever tell anyone is you can disagree with me, and I'm probably wrong on several things that I hold in my worldview and in my theology. But one thing I, I'm confident I am not wrong about is that Jesus is king, and I want to be in his kingdom. And so that's the most important thing I think we can part with. Amen. Absolutely. Totally agree. Um, in two weeks' time, I'll be joined on The Apologetics by Parker Setacase, who is a uh, philosopher, a Christian philosopher. I think he's a determinist as well. And he recently um, submitted a uh, master's thesis on this very question, the, the God as author analogy. So I'll be looking forward to that. Hopefully this discussion between Braxton and me will give us some some fuel for thought and, and discussion in that episode. In the meantime, between now and then, um, check out Trinity College of the Bible and Theological Seminary at trinitysem.edu. Thank you. Yeah, and, and do well, it's also self-serving. Remember, I'm on your faculty. Uh, and, then, and then do check out Trinity Radio at youtube.com slash Braxton Hunter. Um, and uh, like I said, come back in two weeks' time for the next episode of The Apologetics. Braxton, it's been an absolute pleasure, as it always is. Thank you so much for joining Thank me today. You. I'll look forward to talking to you again. been your host, Chris Date, and thanks so much for watching The Apologetics, where we think together through what we believe, why we believe it, and not something else. If you've enjoyed this episode, please click the thumbs up, like icon, the subscribe button, and the bell icon to receive notifications when new videos are streamed or uploaded. Either way, come back in two weeks for the next episode of The Apologetics, streaming live on YouTube every other Monday at 6 p.m. Pacific. Until then...